and welcome to episode 94 of the MJ Cast Harrison Funk Special. I'm Jamin Bull. I'm here with my co-host Q and also guest host Charlie Thompson. Q won't be on this episode today, but we thought we'd kick things off with a little dedication to friend of the show, King Jordan. Jordan King passed away recently, unexpectedly and tragically, due to a condition that he'd had for quite some time. It's a real loss to the MJ community, I feel. It's such a tragic moment to be going through. It is absolutely a loss to the MJ community. Through King Jordan's radio show, he interviewed a lot of people that were really important, especially around the trial and getting information out about the trial. Tom Mesereau was on his show a number of times and the information shared through those episodes and with fans able to phone in as these were live recordings, fans were also able to ask Tom Mesereau and other guests questions directly. Charlie, it's my understanding you were on Jordan's show at, at one point. Yeah, I can't remember when exactly, but it was a couple of years ago now. It was an interesting experience because he, um, as you say, he took calls from fans while you were live on the air. But then what he didn't do was hang up afterwards. So by the end of the show, we had about 15 people on the line. (laughs) One of them was in a coach terminal. So about every 30 seconds, we had a coach terminal announcement coming down somebody's phone line. And it was all a bit chaotic, but um, (laughs) it was an interesting experience for sure. He was really, really brave doing live recordings. It's something we've never attempted to do because of things like that. The scope of a live recording is absolutely terrifying and he did it all the time. Yeah, and the great thing is all of King Jordan's shows are archived online. So you have going back years now, this incredible record of interviews with people who were so closely involved with Michael's trial particularly Tom Mesereau, who appeared on the show again and again. The first person I spoke to after I found out that King Jordan had passed away was Tom Mesereau, and he was very shocked and upset. Particularly, you know, when you take into account how young he was, he was only 36, which is just absolutely shocking. Yeah, it is, it is devastating. The loss is being felt all around the community right now. And a special shout-out to Yolanda Vandergrift. For, for keeping us updated on your Facebook page um, around the developments with, with Jordan King. We thought we'd just dedicate this show to Jordan. It's a show that Charlie and I recorded a while back uh, in 2018 with, with Harrison Funk, Michael Jackson's official personal photographer. And Harrison goes into detail around a lot of things, including um, you know some of the, the darker sides to, to Michael's inner circle. And Angela Lansbury. <laughs> yes, well, that's something you were really happy about, I remember. <laughs> um. I think also it might be worth mentioning that these style of interviews that King Jordan did, they were an inspiration for us, especially as we first started out early on. Absolutely. He, he was doing very deep and special interviews way before we were, and we just wanted to tip our hat to his legacy, I guess, in, in this field. Absolutely, a total inspiration, and he will continue to be an inspiration as we interview people that were close to Michael Jackson. And uh, hopefully, Jordan would have enjoyed this. I know he would have enjoyed this interview we're about to play you. It's dedicated to him, and uh, from all of us at the MJ Cast, Jordan, thank you for everything you did for the Michael Jackson community. This 
The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's, that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Today we're lucky enough to be speaking with award-winning photographer Harrison Funk. Harrison has been shooting entertainment, fashion and advertising for decades. Although he's worked for Rolling Stone, Spin, Newsweek, Life and Time since the 80s, Harrison is probably most well-known to us as Michael Jackson's personal photographer. Harrison has worked on countless Michael projects, including his feature-length film, Moonwalker. In addition to the King of Pop, Harrison has also photographed Janet Jackson, The Rolling Stones, U2, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, and many, many other notable people. Harrison, welcome back to the MJ cast. Thank you guys for having me. I love being on this show. Uh, that's that's great. The previous show that you were on, I think you did it with Charlie, the one on the World Music Awards, it's been pretty much one of the episodes we put out that's received the most great feedback, you know. So thank you for your contributions on that show. I appreciate that. Thank you. I, you know, it's it. That was a that was a difficult moment because I had to remember things that yeah, were, you know, years ago and 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 also moved very quickly that night and or or through that you know the four days surrounding it. And Charlie was a, a wonderful wonderful interviewer i really appreciate you made it very easy and and um i'm glad to hear that you've gotten good responses from it um i have as well i've heard from fans you know around the world saying uh thanking me for being on and and talking about it and yeah definitely for rebuking those people in the media that that want to insist that michael was booed instead of cheered um which i will you know i will stand up for for the rest of rest of eternity the story you told about sort of rushing around the stage trying to capture that performance, and I think you talked about falling over or something at one point. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've been going back and watching the video footage, like really squinting to see if I can see you somewhere in the crowd. <laughs> I I have seen myself on video, and I've had a few fans tell me that, that they, they've pointed where I've been, um, and I, I was moving very quickly. What actually happened was that there was a, a television crew two cameras in in the pit there were a couple of other photographers at the end of the pit and i had to squeeze around them and the the, that area was very narrow as i started from uh stage left when michael came out and tried to follow him michael was making faces at me (laughs) (laughs) as he often would and and i just got locked into the moment and it was just it was funny because at one point michael's michael and i had locked eyes and he you know he was walking forward on the stage and he had that choir behind him which my understanding was didn't they put that together like the day before from some boys and girls club well yeah it definitely wasn't a choir it was just a bunch of kids from a youth club or something yeah and you know, Michael had, I, I don't think, had a clue 
exactly how it was going to go down because it had been no rehearsal. You know, he wouldn't come to sound check the night before. So this is this girl who was a cable puller for the for the TV, for the TV camera person. And she got tired of having to, to sort of go around me. She pulls her cable up between my legs and trips me as if to say, you know, get out of my way. Uh, and I decided at that point I would go to the other side of the stage, you know, to, to stage left and, and shoot there because, uh, and, and it was a good thing I did because that's when I got the flag shot. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, it was, uh, it was a smart move to go to the other side of the stage. And I actually, you know, if I had it all to do over again, if Michael had rehearsed, I would have known, I would have had cue points knowing where to go, but uh, there were no cue points. I mean, let's be honest on both on victory and on bad. I knew the show so well and it was so perfectly choreographed. I mean, there was room for improv, you know, Michael did improv kind of a little bit every show, but he was very precise in his movements so I could tell you on every song where he would be, and I could tell you what I would be doing for that song. And I would sometimes map it out the morning of, kind of in my own mind. Sometimes I make notes, like the shot. I hope you don't mind me just talking freeform about some of this stuff, I'm just remembering it. But, you know, the shot that I considered to be my sort of um, centerpiece, my you know, my go-to shot, which is the, the moonwalking image, which, which I have titled Motion. I, 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 you guys are both familiar with that image, I, I'm assuming. You know I think so. About. I think I know the one. I'm actually going to Google. As you're talking today, I'm going to be Google imaging like crazy. Um, okay. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I know the one you mean. It's the one that's been on the cover of Life magazine yeah. three times. Yeah. And it was... Um, centerpiece they extended the black on either side of michael and, and it was a, a center section for time magazine when michael passed away yeah i know um, the one yeah that came about because michael and i had discussed you know for for two or three days what would be an image like you know that would uh, something that would define a, a truly defining image of michael and you know, the idea, and I know how we're going to execute it, it's going to take some, some doing, and I had to have a couple people help me execute it. We relit that part of the show uh, in order to make that happen. And actually, that frame is either the, I, would, I think it's either the second or fifth frame in the sequence the first time I shot it. And it just worked, and I... You know, I went to the lab the next day, processed the film, called back to the hotel, didn't get Michael on the phone, ran up to his room and knocked on the door. And and Bill Bray looked at me like, what is so urgent? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Michael, come look at this. It's magic. And that was Michael's favorite word. You know, Michael loved to every show he would say to me, Harrison. Did we make magic? My apologies for my bad Michael impersonation. I think that's probably better though than Navi can do it. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> and I said, I said, Michael, 
we have created absolute magic. Look at this. And he went, wow. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he looked at me and I looked at him. And then he says, what are we going to do with it? I said, it's your trademark piece. You know, we'll figure that out. And it didn't get used until the second incarnation, I think, of the Dangerous Tour program. And then it sat. And he never asked to use it, never used any of the, any of the outtakes, nothing happened. And he left it in my care. He said, this is, you know, this is your masterpiece. And when he passed away, you know, we released it kind of for the first time. And, and it, it got wide acclaim. The fans went crazy over it. And, um, you know, I've exhibited it. Um, I exhibited it before he passed away. Obviously, it was um, one of the bigger prints at Proud. You guys, Jamie, you weren't in London for the Proud show. No. But no. I think, Charlie, did you go? No, I didn't know anything about it, to be honest. Um, was that the was that Proud in Camden? Yes, it was. Uh, no, it was Proud in, in uh, no, it was actually Proud in Charing Cross. Oh, okay. Yeah, they've got a few locations. I think they've just closed down the Camden Gallery. Um, I've heard that. I haven't talked to Alex in years, but um, Alex Proud is the owner. Um, but uh, this was at their, um, they had a, a very, I think the Camden Gallery was kind of underground a little bit, where the Charing Cross Gallery was very, you know, in kind of in your face as you came out of the side entrance of Charing Cross Station. Um, the gallery was was right there, and and I, I believe it's still open. I'm pretty sure it's still open. I think I got a notice of some show that's there now. We had you know what two thousand people on the street uh, the night of the opening of that show. Um, but that was the uh, Michael. You know, obviously, was this was two thousand six, and um, when Michael saw it in the gallery, he was just ecstatic. Um, well, Michael came to the exhibition privately and quietly. He, wa- I had heard he wanted to come to the opening. I was told we couldn't provide security for him. It was just too wild. So. My understanding was that that uh, he had wanted to come to the opening. You know, I have no idea if he actually drove up or not. He was at the time. I think he was living at Mark Lester's, if I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure he was staying with with Mark at that time. And uh, so, one Saturday, I get a call that there's a, a strange guy hovering around the gallery from the uh, gallery manager. I said, "Oh." Okay, that's probably Michael. She <laughs> described his she described his disguise. It was the Yankee New York Yankees cap and buck teeth. Um, <laughs> I love that one. Wasn't that great? That was the one he was wearing that in in um, Barcelona on the bad tour or something similar to that. And he was in a bookstore, and I walked up the street, not even realizing was realizing he was in the bookstore. I just went to go find magazines that had pictures of Michael on the cover and, you know, see which ones were mine. And, and I, I'm still staring at the books and I realize that now there's a crowd of people outside and I look over, there's Michael in disguise. 
And I whispered, hello. (laughs) (laughs) He said, you realize that you dragged all the paparazzi with you. When they saw you making a move, they realized you were probably coming to meet me. And you had no idea was here. We're talking about, you know, Michael Jackson coming to your exhibition and and 2,000 people in the street and stuff like that, which is, like, incredible. But Not not at the same time, um, Trump. 2,000 well, no, no, no. people but, you know, in the these opening. Are, this is like big stuff you're talking about, you know, like the king of pop and and crowds queuing to get into your exhibitions and stuff. But we wanted to wind it back um, and understand really where it all started. So could you tell us a little bit about your early life and how you became interested in and then moved into photography? I don't know if I ever told you the story. Uh, I've told it loads of times I was 14 and I I don't know if you guys grew up with a cabinet that your parents kept kept you away from you know that's the drawer you're not allowed to to open you're not allowed to go in that and mine did and um, inside that drawer was my dad's camera and of course being a precocious kid you know I said oh well you know hey it's dad's camera I'm uh I want to see how it works. My dad was an avid hobbyist. He loved to take pictures. And my dad was an attorney and a, and a judge, and, and he was very jovial but, but somewhat conservative man. So I, maybe I was actually 13. I think I was actually 13 when I did this. Yeah, I, get, I got the camera. It was some film. I took it out of the drawer, and I put a roll of film in and took some pictures of just like anything. And I then went to this arts program at the Y for the summer. And there was another guy there that had a camera. And I brought my camera and started taking pictures of people. And I got, you know, slowly but surely, I got really bit by this photo bug. Actually, I think the besides taking pictures of the other kids in the program, I took some pictures at a performance as I said, it was an arts program, so there was dance and music and, and um, short plays. And I just brought my camera to one of those performances and started taking pictures. And I, I realized that I was so taken by the, the ability to capture action. I grew up reading magazines that don't even exist anymore. You know, music magazines like Rock and Soul and Circus and, and, and um, Hit Parader and, you know... Uh, that lot. All I wanted to do was shoot concerts. But being, you know, a high school student, I got to shoot lots of sports, lots of football, American football, proper football, soccer, as as Yanks call it, um, and basketball. And and really, I loved capturing the peak of the action. I loved capturing those moments on people's faces. You know, the, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, that, that sort of thing. And then I discovered that having a camera was a tremendous icebreaker. So I could walk up to people that I would not normally chat to with my camera, get their permission to shoot. And girls loved it because, you know, hey – Take my picture, make me look beautiful. And when I showed, you know, I'm, I made one look beautiful, they all wanted me to take their pictures. So 
it was a tremendous icebreaker. And it was lots of fun. I just wanted to ask, just to interject quickly, and, and sorry, you can continue in a minute, but I just want to know where, whereabouts in the United States you grew up? New York. New York City. Okay. Yeah. And every once in a while, the accent comes through. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if you want me to sound like I'm from New York, hey, forget about it. I'll talk like I'm from Brooklyn. You know, that's where, that's where I was born. <laughs> but uh, New York. And um, New York is a very, New York is an ultra cool place. I think the only two other places on earth that I consider as cool as New York are London and probably Tokyo. Although Barcelona and, and probably, uh, I, I, I mean, there are so many cool cities, but New York has its own thing. And I can compare it. Uh, Charlie, have you been to New York? Yes. Yeah. I have okay. only once. Do you, do you find a similarity to London? Yeah, certainly in the way that everything is, um, fairly close to everything else you know like london just things are walkable whereas if you go to los angeles it's just like ridiculous it's like an hour to get from one thing to the next and it's it, yeah it's there is a, i mean everything is much bigger in new york um makes london look like toy town <laughs> in a lot of ways yeah i mean and and i think um there's a certain vibe a certain essence that new york holds different than any other city on earth. And one of the things I used to love to do, and I started doing this as an early teen, was street shooting. I would go out, walk through the streets of New York, and just photograph people. Today, street shooting has a whole different meaning, unfortunately. But, you know, we didn't have that sort of crazy violence in the States back then. And New York was exempt from a lot of the problems that the rest of the country faced. I mean, New York had its own problems. I, I can't say we were devoid of racism, devoid of anger, devoid of protest. We weren't. You know, New York had the same problems as everywhere else. It wasn't the Deep South. It wasn't the, you know, you didn't see... At least I didn't remember seeing the hippie movement the way friends of mine who grew up in L.A. or in San Francisco saw it. But interestingly enough, I was really inspired photographically and, and inspired in my career as a photojournalist, especially one shooting music entertainment. I was very inspired by the San Francisco, the hippie movement and the, you know, the, the photographs that came out uh, by people like Jim Marshall and you know, who lived in San Francisco, photographed the Grateful Dead in Haight-Ashbury. That was all a huge influence to me. And I remember seeing these pictures as a kid. I remember seeing a picture of Janis Joplin backstage. Just, I guess it was just after she passed away. And I thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing photograph. Because it captured... It captured somebody off stage, behind the scenes, as they really were. I think it was a Jim Marshall picture. I, I thought Jim was, you know, I think Jim was an amazing photographer. But I remember, you know, all of this kind of led to my wanting to shoot music, whether it was live. Obviously, I had to have a backstage pass. I had to be able to get access. And access is everything. 
You know, if you don't have access, you can't capture the moment. You can't document the reality. So you have to have access. And half the time when you work for an artist like Michael, if you get that access, those pictures never see the light of day. They become, you know, and I hope because I don't have most of what I've shot for Michael. It, it went to his archives. You know, I have no idea. I mean, I, I was entrusted with uh, over 200 pictures that I chose and, and that, that, you know, I discussed with Michael. And those are the ones that we see really, you know, that I've had now to release. But there's hundreds of thousands of others taken by me and other photographers that are in a, a vast archive. You know, things behind the scenes that have never seen the light of day. There's a picture that I love. Um, it was it was published a couple times in the 80s of Michael. We went to uh, Detroit to visit. Uh, he was doing a show. At, um, we went to a dinner hosted by Barry Gordy at his home, which was called Boston House. I think it's on Boston Road. Michael was being given a tour of the place and remembering – you know, coming there as a kid and, and he walks into the pool. There's a big indoor swimming pool and there's a piano in the indoor swimming pool area. And Michael goes over the piano, you know, and, and Barry sits down at the piano. Michael grabs his hat and he's I'm shooting him with Barry playing the piano and dancing the way he danced when he auditioned for him. And there's there's video footage of this and there's there are stills of this and, you know, I don't have them. They exist. And I hope that one day they'll they'll actually see the light of day. How confident are you that that anybody actually has custody of those pictures? Because it seems like the so-called archive was in disarray when the estate inherited it because they apparently can't find the bad tour celluloid footage or various other things seem to be missing. I have had numerous discussions with the family about that. I do believe that the archive of still images exists. I don't know in what form. You know, I don't really, this is not my Provence at the moment. You know, I, I wonder if something will change at some point in the future with the way the estate runs things. You know, I'm hoping that, that one day uh, there will be a bad book, a very good bad book. And, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I think that, that it, it is definitely time to do that. I mean, people ask me all the time if I'm going to do a book. I, I'm not going to ever do a, 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 just a Michael book unless I do it in conjunction with his kids or, or his family. And just before we delve into some of these Michael questions we've got – you talked to us about your early career, but can you talk to us about how your career really began? What was the first big break for Harrison Funk? I think that life is a series of breaks. Truth be told, it's hard to put a finger on which, which thing was my big, big break. If I leave something out, you know, then I think back, oh, why didn't I mention that? As I said, I shot a lot of sports. Uh, I started working with the Associated Press 
and um, the New York Times and Gannett paper, the Gannett paper chain when I was in high school. That led to me meeting uh, a whole bunch of people that were um, intimately involved with Warner Communications. And I started shooting the Cosmos, which was the soccer team, football team uh, that Pelé played for. And I had access through these people to shoot Genesis, Peter Gabriel, The Stones, Leif Garrett, Peter Frampton. And all of that sort of snowballed into, you know, working with various music artists. Hard to say what my really my my real first first big break was. I guess 1981, I did the cover for Simon and Garfunkel's concert in Central Park reunion show. And I actually shared the cover with another photographer, but we were, we were hired independently and separately to, to shoot the show by, by Warner Brothers. And, you know, another break, I have, to, I have to give credit to a wonderful publicist in New York in the early 80s named Howard Bloom who saw my early portfolio and really thought that I could, you know, could be trusted to, to work with, with his artists. And so he put me on tour with REO Speedwagon, you know, and, and touring wasn't, wasn't new to me. I'd already been out there, you know, doing it. I also guess I can, I can, I can attribute some of it to getting to shoot Billy Joel when I was in college because I got to meet his his uh, manager, who was also, I guess, his tour manager at the time, who hired me to do a few a few of his shows. Um, and I was only what 18, 19. You know, I wish I could say there was one gigantic big break, and there really wasn't. I think that the the culmination of all these little breaks was in being hired to shoot the Victory Tour. Mm. And that to me is, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's a series of little breaks, you know, one after another that, that snowball into, into building a career. And I think that's probably, you know, I, I look back guys, I'm telling you, honestly, I look back on, on my life and I think, you know, I, I feel like I'm still 25, and I feel like I can, you know, if somebody calls me tomorrow to, you know, go out and shoot a show, I'm going to still run around the stage the way I did when I was 25. Maybe a little slower because <laughs> I've gotten, I'm a little overweight now, more so than I was back when I was 25. But, you know, I'm working on that. I'm working very hard on that right now. But no, I mean, I, you know, I felt like um, I was on tour with Janet a couple years, a few years ago, and I felt like. You know, it was, it was it was very similar to being on tour with Michael. Protocols were similar. The family's the same. You know, it's, uh, getting those shots and having access is is all the same. You know, it's 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 all the same. And and that's what I push for. Whenever I whenever an artist asks me to to work with them, I say, look, the thing I need is your trust. Give me access. I won't release pictures to the press that that, that will embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything that's going to embarrass you. Matter of fact, you know, that's part of my ethos is 
I, I don't have any interest in, in sensationalism or in embarrassing my clients. And I, I really, you know, dislike the sensational media. So, to, you know, to me, this is, this is possibly the most important thing that, that a, a photographer who does what I do can, can give to their artist is to their client is, you know, to, to be sure to, to give them the best pictures in, in the best light, make them look the best and, and also capture the other side of that, but not release it and, and embarrass them ever. Some artists will, will create scandal purposely to get notoriety you know, that, those are those are true stories. That people do that. Who, who? Give us names. <laughs> <laughs> Not on your life. <laughs> Not on my life. You know, just suffice it to say that. Look, even our president, the the guy that's in the White House that, that calls himself our president, <laughs> um, he's a reality show host. This is not presidential material, you know. I, I've seen presidents. I've I've photographed almost every president since uh, Carter, and um, presidents don't act the way this guy that acts. He's a huckster. He's a showman. This is you know, and I'm putting my neck on the line by saying it, but you know, this is. I sometimes wonder if he's not creating a reality show called Welcome to the White House or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just don't I, I look at this and I say he's cre- he creates and he is aware of every gaffe every foolhardy mistake that he makes and don't let anybody fool you in saying that he's not aware of it he is very calculating I've known artists that are like that there is a well, I'm not. I don't want to name names because I don't want to have anybody come back and and sue me for for slander. But mm. um, you know, uh, there are there are definitely artists that create that kind of drama to get to get in the in the in the papers. Well, let me ask you this, Harrison. So Michael used to be friends with Trump back in the day. What do you think he would make of what's going on right now? That's a tall that that's really an interesting statement. Was he friends with Trump? I don't well, think Trump so. thinks so. Well, yeah, but Trump thinks that everybody loves him and you know, everybody's <laughs> out to kiss his rear end and and you know bloody bushy his 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 orange pate. I wouldn't say that Michael was truly friends with Trump. I'd have a hard time believing that, but then again, Trump puts himself in those situations. First time I met Donald Trump was uh, photographing a made-for-TV series, miniseries called I'll Take Manhattan, based on the Judith Krantz book. I was doing specials for the ad agency, and um, I had to photograph Trump in Trump Tower. And one of his scenes was he was having lunch with uh, Valerie Bertinelli, who was one of the stars. Valerie Bertinelli was, was married to Eddie Van Halen. And um, I knew Val, you know, pretty well. And yeah, Trump was personable. You know, I don't know that he did any grabbing, as he's so famous for. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you could tell that he was even, I, I, you know, this was 19, what, 80, 
I want to say five or six. And and he was you can do your fact checking online while I'm talking, but eighty five or eighty six. But he was, you know, he orchestrated all of the photos to be about him. And he really wasn't, he was not even a big player in the movie. You know, he's always enjoyed the limelight. Was he really friends with Michael? I have no idea. You know, I, I never interacted with the two of them on a personal level. Any more than Michael, when he was staying at the Helmsley Palace, was friends with Leona Helmsley. You know, Leona Helmsley will probably tell you that, that, that they were. And of course, that's where, um, oh, God forgive me, what, what, um, um, the concierge, uh, um, the father of the, of the Cassio. Oh, Cassio. Yeah. 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 Um, Dominic. You know, Michael was friends with them, was friends with the Cassios. But I wouldn't say he was friends with Leona Helmsley, and I have no idea, you know, would Michael have supported Trump? I don't know. But I'm going to guess that he'd have a hard time supporting Trump because mm-hmm. Michael was not about the things, you know, Michael was about preserving the earth. Michael was about, he was ecologically minded. He was about social justice. He was about helping people. And, you know, look at Trump's record. So jumping back. Who was it that hired you onto the Victory Tour? And can you remember your first face-to-face meeting with Michael and your first impressions? Well, my first face-to-face meeting with Michael on the Victory Tour was not my first first face-to-face meeting with Michael. But um, I was hired to do the Victory Tour by the Jacksons. And I was put in that position by... Uh, initially by Howard Bloom, who was a publicist for the for the Jacksons family at the time. Although that, you know, there are people that might change his title a bit. The Jacksons had a, a bunch of people working on publicity. But I was brought to L.A. by, I guess, Howard made the initial introduction uh, to bring me to L.A., um, although at Tavern on the Green... I remember Jermaine making a comment to me about the tour. My first impression, Tavern on Green, by the way, was where the the press conference was in November of 83, announcing the tour. Uh, That was Don King's big, big press conference. And it was kind of a whirlwind. I mean, I flew out to L.A. in March of 84, just before rehearsals started, and um, met up with the Jacksons sort of their their personal assistant tour manager, Nelson Hayes. He calls me in the morning after I get there, and he says, oh, are you ready to, to start working? And I said, yeah. He says, good, be at, be at Leo Carrillo Beach in an hour. And I'm in Hollywood, and, you know, accessing Leo Carrillo Beach, which is in Malibu, in an hour was not necessarily the easiest task. I, I had spoken to him about this, this shoot, that we were doing, which was the, a shoot with all the, the, the cars, you know, the four Ferraris and the, the uh, Lamborghini and the um, Camaro, which was a Knight Rider car. And um, we'd spoken about that a day before or something. 
And I didn't realize it was going to happen that morning. And, and I not only got there, but the I had to really hit the ground running. I had to kind of take over a big portion of that shoot and do not only not only behind the scenes, but also ended up taking over the main shoot. And it was quite an experience. You know, and Michael was like, here, take some pictures of me in my jockey outfit on, you know, in front of the this Lamborghini. And <laughs> he, he was the only one that wasn't dressed like a race car driver. He was dressed like a like a jockey, which I found to be absolutely amazing. Um, you know, if you're going to do something, do it different. Do it. Do it uniquely. You know, make a statement. Yeah, Michael, and I chatted and and um, I said, you know, uh, whatever you're doing, I'm at your disposal. Whatever you need, I'm at your disposal. It worked into a a pretty great relationship where I got a lot of access, not only to him, but to, to everybody in the family. So what was it like working with the Jacksons on the tour? Like that? I mean, we've heard from so many people that they were incredibly hands-on. Was it a situation where Michael was letting somebody direct the tour and he was involving himself or was he the man in charge? What was it like working with these guys? I think that it was not just Michael but it was, you know, you had, you had three very strong personalities on stage. Michael, of course, being the strongest of, of the three. But you had Michael, Jermaine, and Jackie. And, you know, there were days during rehearsal. I remember them all going, you know, into a room and huddling, discussing changes that needed to be made or or additions or, or, you know, I mean, and, and hands-on is not the word. These guys were or are the consummate pros. I mean, I've never met artists that know every aspect of what they do in performing live. These guys were choreographing. They were dancing. They were singing. They were overseeing the lighting plot and grid. They were they were hearing playback so that they could hear what the sound would sound like in you know and get an idea of what the sound would sound like in in a uh, a setting. Don't forget they were playing you know venues of fifty to a hundred thousand people. This was the biggest tour that ever hit the business up to that point and the most lucrative. And these guys were totally hands-on. It was their tour. And they, you know, this was, I don't think anybody going into it really thought this was a swan song for the Jacksons. I think that people going, you know, that most people, there was speculation that, you know, maybe Michael would go off on his own. Probably he would. But I don't think anybody expected that that he would never perform with his brothers again after that, and least of all his brothers. I think he, you know I think they thought that okay, Michael's going to have a solo career. Uh, this is my speculation, and you know they'll they'll keep they'll keep performing. They'll he'll something else will happen, and I think everybody's very proud of Michael. I think that that was the that that was the key is everybody's very proud of of his ability. Um, I don't think, you know, 
I'm not going to stick my neck out and say that there was a lot of jealousy. Um, I don't think there was. I think there was, you know, there was the desire to keep the Jacksons a group and viable. You know, but Victory wasn't their best ever album. There were some good songs. You know, don't forget the torture video, which had the... The um, dummy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was on set, and I cringed when I saw that. And I I really, I you know, Jermaine was off doing, he was prepping Do What You Do. And I flew out from New York to L.A. to shoot Do What You Do. And I told him about the dummy and he just shook his head and he said, does Michael know? And I said, I have no idea if Michael knows. <laughs> and when I saw Michael, I, Michael said, so you were on the, the set of torture. And I said, yeah. And he said, Oh my goodness. And he asked me, uh, you know, a whole bunch of questions about it. I was embarrassed. I mean, you know, the, that dummy was embarrassing. It was ridiculous, and I think that, and I, I still to this day believe that, that that was there not just because they thought they could get away with a representation of Michael, but I think they were poking fun at him in a way for not being there, not being part of the video. I still to this day don't know all of the true reasons why he didn't want to be part of that album in a big way. I think that one of the best songs on that album, by the way, is State of Shock. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, which got the least, I think, the least airplay and the least notoriety of that whole album. And frankly, you know, I thought that 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 body, which was also a really good song, even though Michael wasn't part of it, I think that the video for Body was actually pretty incredible. And there was no pretense at having Michael in it. It was just, you know, it was really just. Uh, um, Marlon, Jackie, Randy, and Tito. I, I think uh, Jermaine wasn't even in it. No, it was just the four of them. You know, so I think that at the time, they, I think they realized that they would have to carry on without Michael. And I think it was difficult for them. So what did Michael think of the dummy? I think that you can imagine what Michael thought of the dummy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to yeah. your to your your vivid imaginations, but um, and and I would I would leave the words he used to describe it to your vivid imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Just um on on victory before we get into some of these other tours, Michael. At that time, we've we've talked about how the album had a little bit less Michael than before. We've talked about how Michael um, at that point possibly felt like he'd outgrown the group. Did any of this, do you think have, uh, I mean, there's media reports, many out there about there being tension between the brothers around this tour behind the scenes. Did you see any of that? Like, or did you see a united group? I, 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 again, it's going to be a, it's not a short answer. There was tension, but I don't think the tension was because of what you may think it is. 
there was tension because all of them. Don't forget, Jermaine also at that point had had a solo project that was doing very well. And he, you know, I think that I think that there was a bit of tension because the other brothers also tried to do solo projects around the time. Marlon did one. Jackie did one. I think Randy did one. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the only one yeah. that didn't do a solo project was at that time was Tito. And to be honest with you, you know, the tension didn't come from just Michael's project. You know, I think that I don't think that his brothers were not proud of Michael for being what and who Michael was. You know, I think I think the, that the brothers saw Thriller as an absolutely great endeavor. And the fact that Michael had done so well, the fact that he had captivated hearts moonwalking at Motown 25, the fact that that because and I think because of Michael, I, I I will give Michael more credit probably than than other people will. Um, although I, I I don't I don't think you could disagree with the fact that the Victory Tour was the biggest tour in the history of music up until that point because of Michael. People came out. You know there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jackson's fans. No question about it. Everybody wanted to hear the Motown medley sung by the Jacksons. Everybody there, nobody booed anybody off the stage. Nobody got impatient. You know, nobody got impatient that Jermaine did um, three songs of his own. Nobody got impatient that Michael did his solo solo, uh, songs with his brothers. You know, don't forget the Victory Tour had no other dancers there were there was no you know the choreography was was michael and his brothers as they had been doing it for years they had musicians background singers whatever but this was the jacksons the jacksons were michael's dancers the jacksons were you know um and and michael didn't even feel confident in doing thriller on that tour as you may recall Mm. So, you know, um, was there tension? Uh, I'm sure there. I'm sure there was. I know that there was. There was tension because, you know, the also the people that were surrounding these guys created tension. You know, they had. So the so let's look at this. The Jacksons had a manager who managed four of them: Jackie, Tito. Randy, and Marlon. Jermaine had his own manager. Michael had his manager, Frank DeLeo. And everybody would have to agree through their managers. And they, believe me, they had, they were so hands-on that they made their own decisions. They went into meetings. I saw one meeting where they threw the managers out of the meeting. And the peacekeeper (laughs) was Tookie. Because Frank had a way of really, he was the voice of reason. They may not have always agreed with him because he was there protecting Michael's interests, but he showed a great deal of respect for the brothers. You know, this will cause tension. 
you have a group that has been one group with one manager for you know for years, and all of a sudden y- you've got you've got three separate entities with different managers, and even within the Jacksons, you know, I'm sure there were more than one. There was more than one person giving Jackie Tito Marlin and Randy advice on stage. Look at the tapes. Do you see tension on stage? I see. I see, you know, five and and later. Um, well, don't forget, Jackie wasn't touring because you know he was injured. He he performed so he some didn't... shows with them, but um, at, the at whole the very end. section of the tour, yeah, he didn't. Yeah, for, for well, from the beginning, he he didn't even travel from the very beginning, and then you know he was laid up in the hospital in the in the very beginning. Michael, by the way, was devastated. I was at Havenhurst with Michael the day after Jackie was injured, and Michael was in tears. My brother is not going to be able to do this tour. What are we going to do? But Michael was the kind of person that believed that the show must go on, and he did it. But it, it broke his heart that Jackie couldn't do it.
This is Tito Jackson, and it's Tito time. And thanks for listening to the MJ cast. After Michael did split from the brothers, you carried on touring with him. So did you observe any changes in him, either as a person or as a performer, after he split off and went solo? Have you ever had one of those moments where every bit of stress and pressure doesn't just fly off, but it alters. Michael, it was like the difference between Michael on stage without his brothers and with his brothers was, it was not like he had changed in any way uh, himself. He was still the consummate pro. Matter of fact, he worked really hard in all cases, I've never seen a more hardworking, a harder working um, artist in my life. Uh, I, I, you know, watching him at dance rehearsals, uh, both with his brothers and on his own. I mean, he worked hours on his own, even in victory, getting his his steps right and working out choreography for all of them. And then making sure that they did it flawlessly. And to see him do this on his own on bad was just amazing because he, you know, he, he made this, this was his tour. He had never worked alone. He had always been part of that family. Michael was very comfortable on his own. He was extremely comfortable on his own. He was extremely comfortable, you know, doing his solo project uh, didn't mean he didn't love his brothers, but I think he realized at that point that he had outgrown being part of a group and it was time for him to do solo projects. And of course, you know, as we all know, his solo projects turned into the biggest and brightest of the industry uh, I think he still holds the record for the most albums sold, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he? For Thriller. Yeah. You're talking about this situation with the three different managers and that it got a bit complicated in that sense. What, when Michael split off and it was just him, did that actually change the way that you worked with him? Did Were you able to work with him in a different way than when you were sure. working with the brothers as a group? And, and how so? Sure. I reported directly to him and only to him. I mean, Frank, you know, would run some interference, but nobody else on that tour ever, you know, thought that they could, you know, uh, interface with me as to how to work. And it became much easier because if there was ever any controversy at all, you know, in terms of me doing my job, I went right to Michael. I went right to Frank and I said, look, you know, this is this is what I'm butting up against. What do I do? And I always got, what do you want to do? How do you want to work it out? You know, I mean, not in so many words, but, you know, that was uh, there was one situation and, and I'm not going to elaborate, but there was one situation where I went to, to the two of them. and I said, this is what's going on. And Frank said, you're doing fine. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And Michael said to me, 
in a separate conversation, I don't have a problem with the way you're handling this. Just let's make it work. But Michael, Michael cared about one thing in, in so far as what I was doing. My job was very, I had a very narrow, narrow perspective of, of what to do. Okay, my job was to document Michael's every move. My job was to to provide a a history, a, a, you know, a, a a historical cache of images that would tell the story of Michael Jackson on that tour, and that's what I did at hospitals, you know, visiting ch- sick children at shows backstage even riding on the train between Dusseldorf and where do we go Hanover and Dusseldorf we had some of Hitler's carriages that the that the uh, railway had loaned Michael they were historical historically preserved carriages uh, all the all the swastikas were removed i believe but nonetheless it was a weird kind of vibe but I, I photographed Michael, you know, sleeping on a uh, on a couch in the train and um, eating. And I think I was telling somebody, Jamin, as a matter of fact, I was telling the story about, you know, they asked me on, on um, uh, Today Extra a couple of days ago. Uh, they asked me about access. And I said, yeah, there are pictures of Michael eating blueberry pancakes in his hotel room, <laughs> in his bathrobe. They'll probably never see the light of day if they even exist anymore. I'm sure they do. But, you know, I wouldn't put them out there if I had them. Because, you know, it's very personal. And that was my job. Those were the guidelines that I had to follow was to to photograph Michael, make him look good, which was sort of unwritten, you know, unsaid, unwritten law. But you don't want to make your your artist look bad. But capture him in, in, in reality who, you know what he's doing and show the history, show the truth. And, and that's, that's the job of a photojournalist. So my, my job was actually very, you know, the parameters of my job were narrow. And as long as I did that, he was happy. You know, there was the other side of that, which was Michael and I spoke candidly, frequently. And that's something I won't talk about because that's between me and him. But, you know, he, he often asked me questions and, and, and often asked for my input on things that I gave him very candid responses to. What I, I think is probably good, friendly advice. I don't mean to make, it, make light of that. I just mean, you know, that... That's 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 how I respected Michael. So at what point would you say your relationship turned from a professional one to a friendly personal one? I think in the beginning of in the early part of victory, there was a situation where that was cemented probably in a conversation that Michael and I had where I brought something to his attention that he was unaware of. And I was looking out for him. His mother and Janet were both 
this was in Cleveland, Ohio. They were both in Cleveland for the shows and, and in his suite. And we had some, uh, he had some harsh words for me thinking that I was at fault with something. I wasn't. Um, and I told him, you know, I said, look, I, I don't want to, you know, put blame on somebody else, but I'm going to tell you the truth. This is what happened. And you have a choice. You can either believe me and I'll stay or not believe me and I'll go home. You know, my point is that, that I'm going to tell you the truth, Mike. That's the way it is. And there were a couple other people on, you know, on tours with Michael over the years who told him the truth. You know, the one person I think who probably protected Michael, who stood up for Michael, who really knew and understood Michael best of all was Bill Bray. Bill was just, you know, a godsend to Michael's life and career. And it's too bad that he passed before, you know, uh, so much happened that, that, you know, I think Michael needed his guidance. Bill was almost just, like... Just, just for those not in the know, that was Michael's head of security, right? Chief of staff and head of security. He, you know, he was, he started out, Bill Bray was chief of detectives for LAPD. I think he was the first African-American chief of detectives in LAPD. He was Michael's right-hand kind of surrogate dad. You know, he was the tour dad. He looked after Michael. And, and I think that he and Joe were actually pretty good friends. There was a lot of respect there, at least. Bill looked out for Michael like a father would look out for a son. Bill ran all the security plans and, you know, um, also made sure that Michael was always taken care of. Mm. And that extended to people that were in on the A-team, the people that were closest with Michael. There was an incident, an incident, there was a situation where we had to go in every, in every city across the world that we toured, we had to go process film uh, film for your for your listeners was the thing that preceded digital cameras. No one would dream of taking a, a, a an iPhone picture of a concert back then. Nobody could conceive of what digital photography became. I mean, people were talking about, well, one day that's going to happen. But we used this this celluloid composition of uh, dyes and silver to preserve photography. That's what it was all about. That's what photography was. That's, you know, the exposure of silver halide crystals. I don't want to get too deep into this, but, you know, we, we used film. We would have to go to a lab in each city if there was one. And the lab was usually recommended by the people at Epic Records or later Sony because they had relationships. And... There was one lab. I would go in, take all the pictures with me. I, I would have a count of the rolls. And I would have to stay there while they processed the film. Couldn't just drop it off and pick it up later, you know. And one of these labs said, no, we can't do it. And I said, well, but there's no way I can leave this here because we just, you know, it's not that we don't trust you, but we can't trust you, you know, not to, not to duplicate frames or there's sensitive pictures on there and and the guy says to me we'll take it somewhere else so i called bill and i said you know what do i do and he says 
hang on a second. He makes a couple phone calls. Somebody calls the guy from the lab. I hear the guy from the lab talking loudly with somebody else on the other phone, the other end of the phone. When I realize that he is now, we were in Europe. He was talking to somebody in the States and I, I realized that the loud was probably from not being able to hear because in those days, you know, we didn't have Skype. We didn't have VPN. We, <laughs> we had <laughs> these crazy landline phones that, you know, ran by wires under the Atlantic ocean and then satellite. And so, the guy gets off the phone. He comes out to the to the front, and he says, uh, "Mr. Funk, I, I, I'm sorry. Whatever you need, let me know. How many roles do you have?" I said, "I think I have like, and I think it was like two days worth of shows I was developing. So it was like maybe fifty rolls of film. To process each role takes an hour. It wasn't fifty hours. I mean, you gang process them. You do, you know, you do it all together. But the guy." comes back out after he he loads all the film in the machine and he says to me your boss has the most incredible ability to turn a situation around and i said oh did you talk to michael he says oh no i talked to mr bray who spoke to so and so who spoke to so and so and i said well thank you um and the pictures were processed and i went back to the hotel and Bill said, let's change the game plan. I'll call the people that are recommending the lab before you go, night before. They'll have the conversation that they had to have yesterday. And you'll never have this problem again. And I never had that problem again. Bill had his hands into everything in a very good way. Everything that would affect Michael in any way. So did Frank DeLeo. You know, I can't say that Michael's managers after Frank were as, they were hands-on, but I don't think they were as astute managers as, as Tookie. I think Tookie was probably, he may not have done the most for Michael, but he definitely handled Michael the best. I, I think in those later tours, especially when you're looking at, I mean, boy, if you listen to some of the testimony at the wrongful death trial, in uh with AEG and and you yep. start you start thinking about what Michael was dealing with privately in some of those later tours especially dangerous history and then this is it it certainly sounds like Michael needed another Bill Bray with him in those later tours i mean some of the some of the staff that Michael had working for him it's come out in those testimonies that some of those staff were involved in trafficking drugs to Michael Jackson knowing that he was addicted to opioids his own staff. Like, were you, did, I mean, I'm not going to ask about Michael's drug use, but do you think there were people working for Michael? Did you see any people working for Michael that were actively working against his best wishes? No, not, not at that stage. No, you know, and, and certainly not in terms of drug use or, you know, um, no, I, I never, uh, I never saw anybody that was really working against his his best wishes, but I don't think that everybody that worked for Michael over the years worked for his best interest. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are people that were very self-serving, you know, managing, assisting, being the secretary for – there are people that I think were very much out for themselves. 
that, that, that Michael surrounded himself with people. Look, I, Conrad Murray, the son of a gun, comes out and tweets about Joseph. I mean, what the hell? Conrad Murray's a convicted murderer. And he's still using Michael's name to propel himself into the limelight. Those are the kind of self-serving people I'm talking about. Yeah. And it wasn't just him. Thank goodness Tomei keeps his mouth shut. You know, I was at the memorial. I was shocked. He, I, turned my, I turned to the right, and there he is. And just standing there like he has something to do with anything. There are people... I'm not, you know, I, I mean, I, I, if, if I wasn't on radio, there are people I would mention specifically. But, you know, Michael had a few people, not, not all that many, but he had enough that, that made it difficult because they were out for themselves. Now, some of the ones that were out for themselves also found a way to be out for Michael. They did things that were beneficial for Michael. Uh, and, and, you know... That's just a fact of a uh, fact of reality. People do that. People can be self-serving and also serve the people that they're working for. I don't think it's right, but you know, it is it is how they do it sometimes. And I think that the worst of it is that Michael was very trusting. I think he always had one eye open, but I think he was very trusting and he was very he was willing to give a lot more benefit of the doubt to people then maybe he should have so harrison i understand you were shooting the liberian girl video um what are your memories from that shoot the day that we actually shot michael was was truly bizarre because he was you know obviously not on set with all of the actors and that that were featured in that video and um, his scene was actually very easy, or so I thought. <laughs> we captured it, and actually we, uh, I don't remember how many takes we did. I think they got it on the second or third take, and he wanted to keep going and keep going. This is his scene where he, he's on a Chapman crane, and he comes down, and he says, okay, that's a wrap, and he giggles. And that was his whole that was really his entire involvement in, or not involvement, but his entire presence in the video. And yet the photographs from that became so, for lack of a better word, so iconic and, and so telling of, of who Michael was as an, as an actor. Oh, I think everybody just, I think that certainly people that I spoke with, you know, that saw the video afterwards and, 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 you know, let's not forget that video wasn't even released here in the States for ages. Though it got out here. I mean, you know, MTV played it quite a bit. We shot for half a day or a little more. Michael didn't interact with all of the stars that were in, that were in it. And yet the, the, the photos, uh, you know, of, of him um, became um, very recognizable and, and very iconic. And I, I think that Michael intended it to be that way. I mean, you know, then of course on dangerous, he went on to do remember the time. And, uh, I was on set a couple days, you know, for that. And, um, I came down one day just to visit. And, and I think Michael had a tremendous amount of fun doing that. 
I think that was, you know, I think that he probably, uh, I mean, I think Michael enjoyed being on camera. I think he, you know, I, and I think just from what Michael said to me, I wasn't on set for it, but I think he had um, a tremendous amount of fun with Leave Me Alone and with, uh, which was all green screen and, you know, in the studio. And I think he had a tremendous amount of fun with, with, uh, you know, because I think Michael got, I think Michael liked to get to be playful. Probably the, the, the best long form video that he did was probably Smooth Criminal. And that was a challenge. I think he, you know, he found himself actually acting, making a movie. And I think that's that's something that he loved to do. I think he, you know, his his dream, of course, his goal and his dream was to was to to make films. And I think it's very sad that that he never he never really got the chance to shine as an actor. You mentioned um, Leave Me Alone, which is it kind of fits into another topic that we wanted to raise, because the the other kind of um, defining feature of the bad era You've got the tour and the videos, and it was really like worldwide Michael mania. But what that did also was it ushered in the era of so-called like wacko jacko press coverage, which was just bananas at the time, which is the which is the theme of the Leave Me Alone video. You obviously were in Michael's inner circle whilst all this media madness was going on around the outside. So what was your experience from within the camp, looking out at, at all of this crazy press coverage, and what was Michael's response to that? At first, I I think he was taken he was really taken aback by the wacko jacko crap, and I think there's an interview I don't remember wh- whose interview it was where was it Barbara Walters or was it where he said don't call me jacko. Yeah, mm-hmm. he says I'm he not said- jacko, I'm Jackson, Michael Jackson, or something like that. Yeah, well, he was. I mean, that the, look, Wacko Jacko was was the son. Purely, I think Murdoch and his cronies would have done anything to figure a way to capitalize on Michael's fame and 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 media attention. I think that that they they would have done anything at all to to um, make sensational reports out of out of Michael. It is, you know, it, it's pathetic. He hated that. I mean, I really, you know, I hate to say it that quite so adamantly and blatantly, but he could not stand the wacko jacko stuff. It was just, it was very upsetting to him. And I mean, at the same time, I think, you know, there were moments when he laughed at it, but he he was doing that for self-preservation. I don't think there was a moment when Michael really thought that it was funny. If you were in London during the bad tour, look at you can and you can go back to the archives of the Sun, and and I encourage that. Where every single day, wacko jacko this, wacko jacko that, and unfortunately, you know I don't know even if his PR people could have done damage control to stop it. I think I think that that there should have been more of that, and I fault the PR people on on the bad tour uh, for not doing more. Uh, but again, you know, again, how, how do you how do you know that they didn't see this as a means to getting more 
more front page press. And of course it wasn't just the sun. It was, it was, I mean, you know, probably the mail and news of the world and, uh, and then wacko Jacko bled over into the U S and we didn't have it as much here. The, The national Enquirer picked it up, I think. Oh God. Yeah. Oh Yeah. The Inquirer picked it up, and I, I'm, you know, um, I wasn't, I, I was with with Michael at the time, so I don't, I don't remember what we were, what people were seeing here. People would comment to me about it. I had one person call me and say, "How is the tour with Wacko Jacko?" And I said, "Who?" I cringed with it, although I, you know, I was thinking these people are the Wacko ones. I remember when we were recording the World Music Awards episode and um, I did like an hour-long interview with you. And, of course, I could only use parts of it in the hour-long special that I put together. But we had a whole discussion about how it, what a conflict it, it created for you because you consider yourself a journalist and you're very proud to consider yourself a journalist and you think it's a very noble profession but at the same time, you would feel embarrassed and ashamed by what other journalists and what the media was doing. And part of the problem is, Charlie, that I don't consider tabloid journalism. I don't think of tabloid writers as journalists. Now, here's an interesting, here's an interesting point. The headline in The Guardian... If you if you had Tom Hobbs on right now, he would verify that I never said that Michael was gender fluid. What I said was that Michael saw gender, race, ageism, ethnicity the same way. Right? You're not a thing. Right? You're not he wouldn't see somebody as being male or female first. See, there's a person. And so the activity of, and I think that this is part of the problem. This all came about because of that one picture of Michael putting makeup on using a, not a powder puff, but a, 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 a brush, powder brush. And I think that you know, I we were talking about he had a feminine side. Well, we all have a feminine and a masculine side. You can be the most macho man in the world, and I guarantee you, unless you're a total dolt, that you have some kind of, fem- you know, some feminine side to you. It doesn't mean you can't define sexuality by that. Does that make sense the way I'm saying this? It does, yes. Okay. The media tried to paint a picture of Michael. Um, and for years, like I had gay friends would say, oh, Michael's gay. Really? You know this. Oh, yeah. I had a friend who saw him in a gay bar one night. Uh, really? Michael in a bar? Gay or straight? Michael in a bar? <laughs> you couldn't get Michael to go to a party on tour. You know, he maybe show up and stand in the background for a second, look and wave and leave. Come on, let's be let's be serious. P- 
people, you know, the media tried to paint him as something. So when I said that, sure, Michael had a, a, you know, a feminine side to him. I have a feminine side to me. You know, ask Lena. There's, you know, there's, I think every man, and I think that, I think that women will tell you. They're in a relationship with a guy. They want that guy to be, to have that, that whatever feminine softness or whatever, or quality as well. And I don't even think I'm, I'm expressing this well. But somebody took my words, and it wasn't, it wasn't Tom Hobbs, who I have respect for. And it was it was a headline writer. I I, I attributed it to some, you know, um, just out of school person that probably got a job writing headlines because they and and Charlie, you and I have both been writers and editors as well. Mm-hmm. You know how headlines are written, usually by a party that had nothing to do with the interview itself. Yeah. Takes it, reads it. Writes a clever headline that fits the space. Exactly. It's it's amazing that so much of it is actually dictated by the space. People don't realize the headline in a newspaper, like the primary thing that impacts it, is does it fit perfectly into the space? Right. So for all the fans, and there weren't many, I I got a few – Remarks from fans about the headline, which I didn't write. I said, you know, read the body of the feature. And hopefully, you know, you'll understand exactly what I meant. Bar none, everybody, everybody wrote back to me and said, absolutely, we read the, we read the piece, we understand. Yeah, when I read it for the first time, I that... Uh, the like you say, the body of the work was phenomenal. The headline about the gender fluidity, I was like, hmm, that doesn't sound really like something Harrison would say. That explains a lot. Now that you've you've said that, I mean, really, I mean, it it seems as like they've just tried to get that story and pin it on whatever topic's popular at the moment, rather than actually expounding on what you were saying. Oh, for goodness' sake, let's let's be real here. They, the, the British press, the English press, no. I'll include Scotland and Wales in this as well. The British and Northern Ireland, the British press loves anything sensational. They really do. The more sensational, the more papers they sell. The more papers they sell, the more ads they, they sell. Okay, fine. Let's, let's chalk it up to business. But you're talking about a person here. And you're talking about two people who were friends one of whom has passed on and can't defend himself. And I said, and I, I, I admire Michael beyond belief for how he treated people. He never showed anything close to ageism, racism, ethnicity, you know, ethnicism, um, sexism. And uh, he had people surrounding him, good people from all walks of life. 
the fact that he was putting makeup on with a brush. I put makeup on with a brush when I do when I do television. Actually, I prefer to have somebody else doing it for me because I can't see the spots I might miss. And that, by the way, that picture, as I remember it, it was in Dallas on the Victory Tour. There's another picture that 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 is the 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 night before is a picture of Michael and Jermaine putting on putting makeup on themselves in front of one mirror. They were both kind of, I want to say they were both sort of contrived images. They were real. They were actually doing it. But I think Michael was being a little bit, oh God, if I say, if I say a little campy, I'm going to get accused of something else. So Michael was being a bit over the top, dramatic in the way he was holding the brush and putting the makeup, dabbing the makeup on. It was, it was for the camera, but he had to put the makeup on, right? Does, am I making sense? Is it, is it, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. understood what I'm saying? I would do the same thing. I mean, I, you know, I don't know why anybody, you get in front of a camera and I don't care how big a star you are. You know, you get in front of a camera and you play to the camera. I have a very, very well-known picture of David Bowie from the making of Labyrinth, singing and dancing. And the film crew failed to get it. And I'm in, in the studio, and it was a, an actual take. I'm shooting with a blimp, and a you know, blimp is a sound-deadening device. And I walked out into the, into the control room, and I said to the, the film crew, I said, you guys just missed a moment. And David said, let's take it again and I'll do it again. And he did it for the film crew. Of course, nobody knew that, you know, at the time. And it was never put out there that it was a second take. But it was. And the fact is, you know, he did it for the camera. Just like lots of, lots of artists do things for the camera. Let's ham it up for the cameras. That's what makes the artist desirable you know i mean I, I i and i've seen artists take it to extremes this was not an extreme this was just michael putting on makeup and having fun doing it and you know a picture i i captured of him that i considered to be kind of fun private moment of michael putting makeup on so the media likes to sensationalize that or whatever. They love to sensationalize things. There's also an element of just doing it because it's, you know, because David Bowie wore makeup. There's lots of male artists that have worn heavy makeup, you know, adamant, so on and so forth. But for some reason, right. whenever Michael Jackson does something, it, it kind of, it's presented in a way that it would not be if it was a different artist. Because I think that... Neither David Bowie, nor Adam Ant, nor Alice Cooper spoke with a soft, higher-pitched voice. And I think that there are a lot of idiots out there that can't have that, can't accept that. So they have to make it something that it's not. 
I have a picture, by the way. I have a picture of Alice Cooper putting on mascara. And he was really playing to the camera, putting on this mascara. And then he yells out, while he was put on, putting on mascara, he yells out, Where's my lipstick? <laughs> I mean, really, you know, I think, Charlie, you're 100% correct. It's it's what it's the way the media perceived Michael and it's the way they wanted to create Michael. A, a friend of mine wants to find the English press as building people up, putting them on a pedestal and then knocking them off as fast as they put them up there. Yeah, it's the classic story, the rise and fall. They did it to that David was, Beckham. Have so, you ever heard David Beckham speak? Uh, occasionally, yeah. Okay, he has a almost childlike voice. Sorry, mm-hmm. David. I you know I and unlike you, Charlie, I am a huge football fan, and I really liked David Beckham. But you know, if you listen to him talk, it's not like you know he doesn't sound like your typical sort of jock. You know, deep voice. Hey, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to kill, kill, kill. Maybe that's American football, but, but, but still, or is it Australian rules also? I think they're pretty, you know, they're pretty big, brutal, macho guys, but no, it's, you can't define somebody by their voice. Do you hear Marlon Brando speak? He didn't have a deep voice, but he was considered to be a sex symbol and a, I hate to use the word macho again, but a really macho guy. Well, that's the other strange thing with Michael is that, of course, he was a huge sex symbol. If you look at the crowd, you know, you were on the bat tour. Look at the amount of women in the crowd every night. Tens of thousands of women would be screaming and and many of them would faint. So it was almost like the media was presenting. The media was intent on telling you that Michael Jackson was not a sex symbol, even though he very clearly was. And by the way, I am convinced that half the girls that got carried over the audience and and put on stretchers to you know go to the first aid center backstage were doing it so that they could they could get backstage <laughs> i one girl actually got up and tried to run on the stage and and chucky caught her and and like held her and like she's kicking and screaming and you're not going anywhere girl <laughs> you just fainted. You ain't going nowhere. You gotta stay right where you are. <laughs> Look at the girls that would come up on stage during um she's out of my life. Holy cow. Yeah. You know, one girl, do you remember the the, the girl where we uh, I forget where we were. She wouldn't let go. She held on and held on and she had to be pulled apart from Michael. You know, tell me Michael Jackson, if if anybody tries to tell me that Michael Jackson was not a sex symbol, you know, uh, then then I don't know who was a sex symbol in in the history of entertainment. Michael had a a tremendous following of of girls and guys, you know, who were in love with him. And I that's what you want when you're a superstar. 
That's what. That's how come he could sell forty plus million albums. That's how Michael was perceived by the world. And for goodness sake, the the Guardian writes a crazy headline like that about using a powder puff. I mean, hey, more power to them. If they can find the sensationalism in something as simple as what I said about Michael loving all people and and seeing all people as they are, you know, more power to them. They've got a great headline writer who just takes things out of context and makes it sensational. And and they probably happened to find the, you know, they probably had the the sensational headline writer look at the story because that was what was going to sell papers. I'm curious to know if that sold a lot of papers. Well, it definitely, it definitely shot the story up to their top, at least like their top three most read on the web, because they have a little ranking on their website that tells you what their most read stories are today. And wow. um, that piece was right at the top of the chart. Wow. It was being discussed by all corners of the fan community as well. I've seen it in a lot of different groups on Facebook, but all positive comments, really. Nobody focused on the headline. It was mainly fans uh, positively talking about what you had to say. I have hundreds of hundreds of of um, emails and tweets and and um, posts and such. Uh, you know, um, saying thank you so much for positive for putting out positive things about Michael. Mm, yeah. um, I only will put out positive things about Michael because there's nothing negative to say about Michael. Michael was human. You know, he could make mistakes like everyone else. But Michael was, and I will say this again and again and again to the day I die, Michael was not only the greatest performer of our time, the greatest entertainer of our time, and I make no apologies to anyone else because I love David Bowie. You know, I love Frank Sinatra. I love... The Stones, I love The Who, I love Coldplay. You should see my collection of music. I listen to music all day long. And I, I've even made mixtapes for shoots just so that I would play what, you know, somebody I'm shooting wants to hear. But Michael was the greatest. Michael was the most famous human being that has lived in our lifetime, probably to date in any lifetime. Michael was the most prolific writer, most engaging performer, most visual, great dancer. And if you have to remember Michael because his photographer said, oh, you know, he had a feminine side or or agreed with a writer and said, yes, there was a fe- Michael had a feminine side to him. Well, I'd be proud to be that person with a feminine side, too. If I were Michael, I'd be mm. proud to be what Michael was. I'd be proud to to I'm proud of the fact that I had the opportunity to work with someone of such greatness, someone who could go to a children's hospital and brighten their day, brighten their life. And, and I mean, there, there are stories, many stories, where Michael met kids who were dying on their last breath. And they stayed alive for 10, 15. Some of them had, had miraculous recoveries. 
I'm not calling Michael godlike, and I don't want anybody to turn my words, but, you know, he had this effect. He also had sympathy, compassion, and empathy. And when we were in Dallas, this, this young, young kid came to um, the hotel in the back of an ambulance before the show. And Michael came downstairs to see the kid in the ambulance. And the kid, as I remember it, if I'm not mistaken, and I hope someone can, can check this. I, the kid saw the show and passed away right afterwards. Mm-hmm. He lived to meet Michael and see the show. You know, I'm sure you've heard stories like that before. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, he, you know, the various stories. There were stories of, like, um, children who were murdered who Michael would see it on the news and would be so affected that he would ring the family and pay for the funerals and, and all kinds of stuff. There was a, a mass shooting in Stockton, California, 1989. We heard about it on the news. Michael saw it. I don't remember if it was on, you know, one of the stations in in LA decided to go to Stockton the next day to pay a visit to the school to offer his condolences to the kids. Now I don't remember the teachers. I don't remember if he paid for, but I think he had something to do with paying for counseling for these Mm -hmm. kids. This is what? 10 years before 15 years before Columbine. When, you know, America wasn't rife with mass shootings. And Michael was, was in tears. Michael was in tears about the kid that passed away in Dallas in, in, in 1984. There was a girl who came to a show, I think on the Triumph Tour. She had cancer. She went into remission. She came back to see Michael on the Victory Tour. And she told him that she was cancer-free. And I believe she's still alive. She was a -a Make-A-Wish kid who lived. They got it. And she attributed it to Michael. And his, his response was tears rolling down his face. Michael didn't think himself a god he just knew that he had the empathy and the power to, of, of positivity to help these kids heal. So he helped them. He was very active with Make-A-Wish for that very reason. You know, we, we could go into hundreds of stories about Michael wanting kids and even some adults to, to come to his shows, to meet him, you know, in the end, um, and I don't want to go down this path at all, but it's what got him in trouble with a, a very dastardly family, you know, that took advantage of him, that put him through hell. You guys know who I'm talking about. Well, yeah, I, I mean, and, and, and you were there right in the, in the middle of, because the, the whole 93 scandal broke in the middle of the tour 
Yep. Um, so you oh. would have been a, a percipient witness to the whole thing. So, I mean, what was what was going I on was, there? What, I was in Neverland shooting something. And Jordan Chandler was there. And I have a picture somewhere of Michael patting Jordan's head. Jordan's wearing a baseball cap in this picture. You know, and the scandal breaks three weeks later. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what a horrible situation. You know, it, it was devastating for Michael. Michael was already in a lot of physical pain. It was it was hurtful. And Why was I, he in physical pain? From dancing, from falling to his knees, from, you know, look at his moves. How many dancers can fall to their knees without knee pads and not have spinal problems? You know, it just happened. <sighs> Michael danced. Some days Michael danced 10 to 12 hours a day. With breaks, obviously, but rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. Michael, Michael pushed himself, pushed his body in a way that I've never seen any other artist push themselves. You know, without without breaks, without without stopping, just going for it. You know, the, the, I'm not saying he was superhuman, but he he definitely had a quality about him as a workaholic and as a as a, a perfectionist an absolute perfectionist i remember um one night in in um at debbie reynolds studios in north hollywood michael was in rehearsing with i think he was in doing a dance rehearsal by himself i think he may have been there with his brothers originally, and this is in 80, 84, before the Victory Tour. And um, Angela Lansbury. I uh, don't know if you guys know who she is. She's an actress. My ears have, my ears have just perked up. I have, uh, I'm, I'm, talking to you, I'm talking to you on a phone decorated with Angela Lansbury right now. <laughs> He's in big Dude. <laughs> <laughs> you coax the blues right out of the horn. Mame. Anyway. Mame. Yeah. Yeah. So Angela Lansbury, even though I, I mean, I liked Murder, She Wrote, but I was never a huge fan. I, I mean, I watched it, but I was never like a huge, huge fan. I worked with her nephew on, on some film projects, some TV projects, I think. He was an assistant director um, in Hollywood. And I don't know what happened to him, but nice guy. And 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 uh, I was a fan of hers. I think you read in the article in the Guardian that my my uncle was big Broadway photographer, who had a lot of influence on me. And he was very good friends with Angela Lansbury because she was always on Broadway. And I think he shot. He did actually shoot all the publicity stills for Mame, both both the film and the. And the uh, Broadway show. And I'm walking down the hall, going to the restroom. And 
Angela Lansbury is is rehearsing in another studio for a revival of Mame that's going to play in in L.A. And I'm peering through this little window. I'm on my knees looking through this window because it, it, it's a low window and it's the only way you can see. And and someone had told me that she was in there and she comes over to the window and she waves for me to come in. And she says, who are you? I said, oh, I'm here with, with either Michael or the Jacksons. I don't remember. And I said, I think I, I was with Michael. I think, she, you know, I, I think it was just Michael alone. And she says, oh, what's your name? I told her. She introduces herself in a very proper way. And she says, oh, can I come down and see Michael? I haven't seen him in ages. Of course, it doesn't dawn on me. Of course, Angela Lansbury knows Michael Jackson, you know, who who would never think. So I said, sure. I took her down the hall and into the studio. Michael's dancing. And he giggles and he goes, oh, I'm so sweaty. Hey, <laughs> how are you? You know, like, like just so gracious. And they talked and whatever. And she stayed while he, you know, for a little bit while he rehearsed, then excused herself and left. On, on the way out, Michael said to me, I didn't know that you knew Miss Lansbury. I said, well, I don't. I said, I, you know. I was watching her rehearse and she's in that studio with a little window. And he said, Oh yeah, he, he knows the studio. He said, what's she doing? I said, a, a revival of Mame here in LA. Oh my goodness. How cool. I got to go see that. You know, it was not, these are, these are superstars, you know, that, that, that the average person just perceives as, Bigger than life. But there's a, there was a respect with Michael, and I think there's a respect with a lot of a lot of entertainers for each other. Where they will, you know, they 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 will admire each other in a very big way. And Michael admired people in a very big way. Half the Lakers used to come down to to visit. Uh, rehearsals on the victory tour, you know, and Michael magic became magic. Johnson became, um, pretty friendly, you know, and, and magic was really good friends with Jackie and he would come down to rehearsal. Nobody, you know, like, Hey magic, how are you? Michael had tremendous respect for what these guys did and made sure that any of them that wanted to see the show got to, it was it's it was just his way. It was his way, you know, and and it, with kids too, and you know, like kids that uh, he uh, at Neverland, he would have boys and girls clubs come up there and spend the day, and they had the run of the place, and he, you know, interact with them just like friends. These are the things that people don't necessarily see about Michael. And I wish I could express in such a way that they really understood that he was human. He was, he was Michael Jackson, but he was your, he was a good human being. We, we got to this point on a bit of a tangent from you talking Sorry. about Michael being in, um, 
in physical pain from the tour. And then yep. you were about to tell us about how on top of that physical pain, you witnessed other impacts on him from these allegations which arose. What? Because I think it, it all broke while you were on the second leg of the Dangerous Tour. So what did you observe about Michael's physical and mental health in the wake of that story breaking while he's still on tour and still having to get on stage every night? Well, at that point, I was actually not touring with Michael, but I was doing special projects with him. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I was was sort of – I was doing projects away from the performances – uh, which included a lot of a lot of portraits and 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 behind the scenes sort of imagery. Um, and I have to remember now because a lot of it was just like it was the the Mandela shoot. It was um, the costumes shoot that seemed to go on for days and days up at the ranch, where we photographed Michael in almost every one of his his costumes. There was, you know, there were, and there were other bits and bobs. I wasn't there shooting live as it were all, you know, every night. And I only did, um, a handful of shows in, in Europe when he was back in the States, I was with him pretty frequently. And, and what I, what I saw around that time was, you know, my perception was that he was devastated by the fact that someone that he had been close to, uh, who he had befriended and whose parents he had befriended or his mother, whose mother he had befriended could turn on him like this. And I think that put him in tremendous emotional pain as well. You know, of course he, he wound up in treatment when he canceled dangerous and that was very painful for him as well and embarrassing. I think some of these things leak out to the, to the media and he doesn't want it out there. I'm sure he didn't, he didn't want all of his laundry aired in public. And then again, you know, you had, uh, his his secretary at the time writing a kiss and tell, despite having and even even and and you know I I I'm very angry about this. Bob Jones wrote the book that he wrote. It's like you know we all the, yeah the book the book he didn't even know what was in it. He when he was questioned the, at the trial, he didn't even know what the book said. Yeah, so Stacy Brown just basically did a Vulcan mind meld, got into his brain and zapped it out and put it in a book, right? <laughs> I, think, I think what he was saying was that Stacy Brown had uh, had embellished had embellished yeah. the the material that he'd given him. Yeah, yeah, but the fact is, I'm sorry, he shouldn't have given Stacy Brown one iota of material to begin with. Because, you know, who wants to write except for somebody looking to make a buck? Who's going to write a book that is so diabolical? You know, who, who tells stories? Uh, do, do you hear me going in the media and, and telling behind-the-scenes tales 
of of <laughs> Michael's life. I, I was just no. thinking that before, actually, how what a testament that is to your character. Not only that you that you don't go and tell those stories, but just thinking about when the news broke around those allegations um, with Jordan Chandler, a, a, a much lesser man would have would have sold that image of Michael patting Jordan Chandler on the head. Imagine how much that would have been worth at that moment. That image, by the way, is kept under lock and key so that in case anything happens to me, it doesn't fall into the wrong hands even today. And I mean that sincerely. There are people who have seen it. I had conversations at the time with uh, some of Michael's people about what we want to do to kill and suppress those images. We did. We suppressed all sorts of, you know, there was a photo shoot that I did of Jordan that Michael paid for. We killed it. It's gone. Doesn't exist. I have a lot of choice words to use for Jordan's mother. I won't. Obviously, his father committed suicide, and I think he just, you know, some people will say that he committed suicide because he um, had some, I, I guess he had some kind of debilitating or incurable disease. I don't know what it was. I think he killed himself because he couldn't live with his own guilt anymore. You know, he he picked Michael's pocket, well, not Michael's pocket, but the insurance company's pocket for how many millions? About 18, I think. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's a lot of money. You, you talk about guilt. I, I actually really am, I don't know if the shock's the word, but both him, both Jordan and Gavin, I really hope that one day, as, as men, they do the right thing, and I, I doubt they will, but... <laughs> You know, I, a man's life was destroyed because of what they claimed. And uh, I do hope that at, at some point in the future they do the right thing and, and tell the truth. Well, we know I, that, that Jordan spent, you know, years telling anybody and everybody that it never happened. And when Michael was on trial in 2005, Jordan fled the country so he wouldn't have to testify. But had he testified, Mesero had all these witnesses lined up who were going to come to court and say, well, hang on a minute, we've known Jordan for 10 years, and he's always told us it didn't happen. Just like Corey Feldman, you know, who suddenly sees an opportunity with a failing career to, to start talking about, you know, things that may or may not relate to Michael. But here's, here's a factoid in that, right? Don't you remember Corey Feldman said nothing? Michael never touched him. Michael never did anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he started doing interviews. I don't know that he ever accused Michael. Yeah, but I think he gave some interviews where he said Michael had shown him books of photographs of diseased genitals or something. This was in about 2004. Diseased genitalia. Wow. Yes. That's a turn on. <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but, I mean, I know, I know Corey pretty well, and, and I think, you know, Corey wanted to get out there that a good part of Hollywood is molesting and inappropriately relating to other actors. I think that that's 
uh, Harvey Weinstein is on trial or soon to be on trial uh, for all sorts of salacious acts. Harvey Weinstein is not exempt from anything just because he made some great movies or good movies. Bill Cosby is going to go to jail at 80-some years old. Bill Cosby was America's father on TV. You know, he was just as much as any any of these guys that played, you know, family men. It is a sad testament to Hollywood. Yes, the casting couch exists. Yes, there are people out there that use it on both sides. On both sides for their own benefit. Okay? Men who prey on women, boys, children, whatever, are just, they're just despicable human beings, even if they are artists, even if they are producers, even if they are whatever. Okay? I'm not commenting on, you know, the, I'm not, certainly not going to comment on the musician groupie relationship. Because I think that's consensual, but I, for the most part. But I think that these guys that prey on innocence looking for a, a, a way uh, to get their foot in the door are just despicable. That was not Michael. You know, Michael didn't need to hurt anybody. He wasn't a hurtful person. He was just the opposite of that. He was, you know, a very kind, loving person. You know, but where where has our world gone when the when the current president can say what he said to Billy Bush? I, I don't know if you're familiar with that. That was yeah. the uh, yeah, of grab him by the yeah, line. exactly yeah by their cat. Um, <laughs> Take their cat Insert and swing it around. sound here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, look, Billy Bush got fired over that. Did he deserve to? Hell no. All he did was conduct an interview, and maybe he suppressed it because of his own journalistic integrity. I don't know why he got fired. I think it's ridiculous. Michael went through pain. True Emotional and physical pain. He didn't sleep. And when he was acquitted in June of 2005, Michael never ever wanted to go back to his beloved ranch. The only place on earth where he could get complete peace and solitude. He didn't want to go back there. Hmm. You know, couldn't even leave the childhood home for his children. And it's very sad to me. I was wandering in the rain. Cast your life feeling insane. Swift and sudden fall from grace. Sunny days seem far away. Crimson shadow belittling me. Scottish doom of old Let me how does it feel? How does it feel? 
Hi, this is Scott Ross, lead investigator on the Michael Jackson trial, and you are listening to the MJ cast. Thank you for listening. So just on the ranch, you, you spent a lot of time there, by the sound of it, shooting the, Michael in the ranch. Can you talk to us about what sort of place it was to be at? What did it feel like to be at Neverland? I relished every minute that I was asked to come up there. It is one of the most idyllic places on earth it is peaceful it is calming you can get lost there you know it's it's huge and there was so much there for example if i couldn't sleep it was a whole game room house to go to to play in with pinball machines and a flight simulator and a um, stuff, toys. The house itself was like a museum. Michael collected, you know, to anybody else, he'd be, you know, he'd be a, um, he was a very savvy collector of all sorts of cool stuff. And there was all sorts of cool stuff to always look at there. There was a kaleidoscope that I got lost in for about half an hour one time um, in the living room. If you enjoyed walking or hiking, there was a never-ending array of trails and, and places to go. Um, the train was so it was cool. The, the amusement park area with the bumper cars and the Viking ship and, and the, the cups and all that just – incredibly like to have that 
as as your own personal outlet for fun. You know, how many people in the world can do that? Michael gave himself and his guests the ability to have unlimited fun. And let's not forget the animals because he had the most beautiful, wonderful animals in an, in an animal park that was much friendlier to the animals than any zoo. I had a particular affinity for his lion, Kimba, who was just lovely, as lions go. I don't know what else I can say about the ranch. I mean, uh, I wish I could I, take the pictures in my head and put them there for your viewers to hear and or to see. The ranch was, was one of the most amazing places on earth. And, and to see Michael lose it in the way he did and to see him not want to go back there breaks my heart. It was very sad. And you, it sounds like you had a yeah. lot of fun there with him as well. That Your Guardian interview talks about you being pretty aggressive on the bumper cars with him. <laughs> yeah, we, we were. And, and it was um, – <laughs> yeah, right after we viewed, we viewed um, um, What's Love Got to Do With It, um, I think we both – we both needed an outlet for that. That movie can be very upsetting. And I, you know, we both know Tina well. And um, I, I, you know, worked with her just after she and Ike broke up. And, and when she started building her career back again, uh, I think for Michael, seeing anybody abused is just, you know, was devastating for him to, to, to witness. And the movie affected him and, 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 we, we viewed a bunch of films. Uh, I viewed a bunch of films with him at the ranch. But after that one, we, we went out and we went, got on the bumper cars and just started slamming into each other um, <laughs> just as an outlet, uh, you know, for, for emotion. He loved that. He was not one. Um, I, I came at him one day from one end of the bumper. The, there's a, I don't know what you call it. I'm going to call it an arena. Um, and the bumper cars are, they're electric and they, they have a pole and the pole, the post hits uh, electric charge in the ceiling, which drives it. And I, I started at one end and diagonally came across and slammed into him and knocked him ac- across to the other side of the, the little arena. Like if you've ever played air hockey, kind of like hitting the puck. It was so fun. And then he came back at me and, and knocked me to the other side. And we just kept doing this. And, and a bunch of other people came and, and joined in. And it was a free-for-all with the bumper cars. Uh, Michael loved that. You know, I, I think I told the story on the, on the, 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 uh, in The Guardian about the Viking ship. I was photographing him from across um, on, on one end of the ship. He was on the other. And um, uh, I said... You know, he kept telling the guy to speed it up and make it go higher. And I said, I forget exactly what he said, but he, I said something about, you're going to make me lose my cameras. And he says, I might lose my cookies. And, and (laughs) Tom Hobbs, the guy that the writer for the guardian didn't understand that that's an expression, meaning I'm going to get sick. I'm going to throw up. (laughs) 
And he took it to mean that Michael must have had cookies in his pocket. They were going to fly out or something. <laughs> and it wasn't that at all. It was, it's a very American expression. It was very, it was just, it was hilarious. I mean, I had the, my camera on a, on a neck harness uh, that went around my shoulders as well. And so I wasn't really going to, it wasn't going to fall off, but um, he was, he was a, you know, complete daredevil when it came to those rides. Um, I wish he, I wish that I had, I don't know if he ever built the roller coaster. I don't think it was, it was ever finished. I, I don't think he was allowed. There's a story out there that he wanted to, but the count, the local council actually stopped him from being able to build it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. They were, they gave him a really hard time about the train too. And I, I remember when the train, when the, when they built the train station, I went up there to, to photograph the property and, um, I was, he wasn't there and I was, I was up there photographing these statues he had animal statues placed in front of the on the lawn in front of the train station i was up there for like three days just photographing the statues you know in situ and and also the train station and i get a message to call him and he said don't photograph the train station i said oh why he said just don't photograph the train station i said okay and then he calls me back and he says, I need to talk to you, but I can't on this line. I don't know who's listening. And apparently he didn't want the train station photographed because he put it up without a permit initially um, and was fighting with the county or whatever about it being there. And of course, they let it be there. I think, you know, whatever, whatever he had to do to make it to make it stay, he, he made it stay. It was beautiful. It was an absolutely beautiful building. I think it's still there. I'm pretty sure it's still there. I think everything's still uh, there except like the rides and the contents of the houses. Other than that, I think most things are still there. Yeah, there's nothing in the house. In, in I mean, there's nothing of his that's in the house anymore. The rides are all gone. They've been sent to different places. I've been in the house since Michael passed and, and there's nothing. There's a fascinating photo shoot out there, actually. It was um, one of the more interesting shoots that I think that took place at Neverland was one that wasn't even allowed to happen. I don't know if you've read the news news story, but those couple of guys snuck in there after Michael had left. I think it was 2007 or something. They went in late at night and just photographed this like abandoned Neverland. It's fascinating images to look at. Things are in disarray. and I think these guys are famous for, for breaking into abandoned properties. Yeah. And, and doing that. I, I, I mean, I've read it, I've seen it online and um, I've wanted to get in contact with them. I never, I never have, but I've wanted to get in contact with them um, and just, you know, I, I don't know if they'd even talk to me because what they did was illegal and who knows if they're, you know, worried about trouble. But I have such fond memories of the place. It, mm. You know, I mean, the kids, I think, are the ones who lost most because, you know, this was their childhood home. And I, I think that I, I know from, you know, talking to Paris that, I think she'd love to be able to go back there and and live there or at least have it as, as, you know, as theirs. Um, But it's, you know, the whole situation is very sad to me. Um, It's the, there's, there's a lot of criticism of the estate given how rich it is and given how much money it's made since Michael passed away, which is billions, literally billions a lot of fans are, are very cheesed off that they haven't bothered to buy back 
Neverland? Is that something you think they should do? What keeps me out of trouble, Trolley, is not commenting on anything about the estate. Um, <laughs> the, you know, as a human, as as a as somebody with compassion for Michael and his and his kids, yeah, I do. I think they should. I think that they should have done everything um, in their power to make it possible for his kids to where they were born and grew up. You know, I think that there's a lot of things that I I don't want to comment on. They do things as they see fit, and I'll leave it at that. I think that at some point, his heirs should have more control. And, you know, from my point of view, he asked, I'm only going to say this, he asked that his catalog never be sold. I do remember a public speech where he said, over my dead body, mm-hmm. the catalog was was sold. It's it was you know nothing anybody else could do about it. It was a decision that was made by the people that were put in charge. He also said similarly to the catalog comment. He also said in his TV special, uh, Michael Jackson's Private Home Movies, that he would never sell Neverland. Yes. I think there's actually there's actually I can't remember this is just a vague memory but I think there's an interview out there with somebody who was who spoke to Michael later in his life about what his plans were for Neverland and although Michael didn't want to move back there he he did want to open it up to become a um like a, a retreat for people that were suffering from illness that could go and stay there. Mm, I I've heard that and I you know again these are not things that I can speak to because I'm just not privy to them, but but yeah. I can, I, you know, as long as we're talking about it, I I, I, will, I will say that it is such a beautiful setting that it would be perfect for that. Mm. Um, I also think that, you know, letting that many thousands of acres go to waste is is just sad. Um, it's a big a big portion of Central California. I think there's also the problem of, and 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 we can't, you know, uh, I don't want to lay blame on anyone, whether it's the estate or or anyone else, except I know that his neighbors gave him a hard time at different times about being there, and there was, you know, I I mean I've talked to people in the town of Los Olivos who've said that, you know, they loved the fact that Michael was there. They're very proud of the fact that Michael was there. And I've talked to, to people in town that, that didn't care for Michael being there. So I, I think that, you know, it, it's a it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's, you know, who do you believe, number one? Who do you put your reliance on? It was a long time ago that Michael was there, too. Mm. You know, I, I, when was he last there? It was, uh, he moved out in... I know some of the family were there during the trial. Um, yes, but I don't know whether Michael was there. I think he was actually. I think he, he stayed there in a he guest did. unit. Yeah, yeah, he was there. He, he was did. recording music there with. Um, we've spoken yeah. to Michael Prince, who said that he was there recording music with Michael during the trial. So that was two thousand five. Yeah, four. Yeah. yeah, but you know, again, it's that's thirteen years ago. I just think it's sad that that it had to, you know, it had to be left the way it was. I think it's. It's even sadder that, you know, and again, I don't know, but I've heard 
the the stories that Tomei stole a lot of the what was at the property. Oh, everything! Um, everything was there. It was all auctioned off through Julian's auctions. Auctioned all that gear off. Yes, just priceless artifacts of the greatest entertainer who ever lived, from costumes yep. to chairs to cars to everything gone. It's very sad. It's very very sad. Something else that's that's very sad, and and I know that this might be a, a bit of a, a a subject you have to to dance around carefully, but it's something we Charlie and I both very uh, very much hope we can talk about, is that you were there for probably the single most controversial thing that the estate um, and Sony Music have ever done in the, in the history of, of of Michael Jackson posthumously. Anyway, you were there um, photographing the the sessions that Teddy Riley was involved in for the the Michael album in 2010 and i know you'll you'll probably have to be careful around what you say here but can you talk to us about what that project was like what was the vibe in the studio as teddy riley was working on monster and and those other songs <sighs> again there are things that i can't discuss because of legal constraints I will say that the vibe in the studio was absolutely lovely. You know, it was only after the question mark arose as to what was Michael? What was the Casios? You know, um, I was very mindful of what I was seeing and hearing I think that the songs themselves, in some cases, were were okay. But you don't you don't claim it to be somebody who it's not. And I have to again. You're right. I have to dance around this a little bit to answer your question. The vibe in the studio was was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I think that Teddy's heart was really in the project. I think, though, that it's probably something that should have been done with a little more care and probably later on. Um, I don't know what the sales figures were. I, I, I've heard that they were not very good. They really weren't. Yeah, it, was, it, was in, <laughs> no. it was in bargain bins within about six weeks or two months. Which doesn't surprise me, considering all the bad publicity it got. The fans are very, they're very astute and they're very, the fans are, are not going to sit back and take any nonsense. Mm. You know, who's going to buy a posthumous album? It's either fans or, or people who have heard the songs and fallen in love with the songs. It is what it is. And I, I just, um, uh, best to skip over this one. Um, <laughs> any further? No worries. All right. What if I, what if I put it this way? You've got, would you put your life savings on the tracks being real or fake? Um, I, the, the tracks were, uh, I mean, they were real tracks. They were, they, they were music. There was music. You know, you can <laughs> hear it. It's music. Would I have invested in that album as a project? No. Okay. 
Fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate <laughs> you say you don't want to talk about it, but I've got, <laughs> I've got so many questions about like what Teddy was saying, what he was feeling, what he was, you know, because he worked on a range of different tracks. He worked on ones that were actually Michael and then he worked on the Casio tracks. Um, and right. I'd love to know if his attitude changed between those two tracks and his... his why, don't you get, why, why don't you get Teddy on the show? We tried. I've actually, uh, well, the thing is I've spoken to Teddy. I've spoken to Teddy um, on Twitter and he he's yep. revealed to me publicly on Twitter that he was screwed over by the Casio family. Okay. He's he's actually come out and publicly said that, yeah, he was taken advantage of from the family, from Sony. So he's he's been public about it. I'd love to talk well, to him. Which family? You mean the Casio family? The Casio family, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. I mean, he okay. was there. He was there with Tarrell, Michael's... Um, nephew they were yes. working together in the studio and they uh, they lost a friendship over this situation because of teddy's choices yeah. well and and i understand that i think that i think that that anyone who worked on that project and i i mean i came in okay so here's the story i i came in because teddy's manager called me and said teddy wanted me to come down and shoot okay fine and I knew Teddy, you know, so that, that wasn't a big, a big surprise. And then I said, to, uh, we were talking and he said, could you bring me some pictures of Michael to put up in the studio as, as inspiration? And I agreed to, you know, I brought him some pictures. I put them up in the studio as inspiration. This was not that long, I guess. I forget. I worked on a project with, with Teddy Around the same time, I was doing a Blackstreet project with him and shooting his band. It wasn't an unusual request. I think that it was only after things got started and I wasn't aware of there being any controversy to begin with. You know, that sort of thing only happens afterwards. And I'm sad that it happened. I'm sad that... that, that 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 the decisions that were made were made. I so what were I, you were you actually there documenting? Is that what you were doing? Were you there taking pictures, or were you yep. kind of there as a guest? Or you were there documenting? So yep. is is there like documentation then? I don't know. Like I don't know whether you were filming or taking pictures or what was going on. But is there is there like a a contemporaneous record of the shit hitting the fan? Basically, was this all captured? Um, it, the, the, the so-called shit hitting the fan, <laughs> um, was not something that was noticeable to anyone on set, uh, in the studio. Um, kind of difficult to describe. It was like, um, uh, it it started coming out with conversations behind the scenes. And yeah, I mean, I documented as I would have done for Michael. Every, you know, every nuance of, of the recording. Um, I was in there, you know, with all the, the background people, whatever. Um, I was there with 50 Cent. Um, I was, you know, I shot the strings uh, the string sessions, um, shot lots of Teddy, lots of other people, you know, in there. Um, and don't forget the tracks, 
came to Teddy finished for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, all he had to do was, was, you know, put it together and mix it and, uh, re yeah, I won't even say he re-recorded much of it. He just he he, he put it together. the music. So he's. I mean, I've heard the pre-Teddy and the post-Teddy versions, and he he did produce a lot of the the music underneath the songs he worked yep. on. But I mean, I feel sorry for him in some ways because what was actually going on was that they were stringing him along. Sony was saying to him they were giving him sort of one track at a time, and they they started out giving him. Um, the Casio tracks and Teddy was working on them in the hopes that he'd actually get some real Michael. I think there's a quote somewhere of him saying, <laughs> when are they going to give me some real Michael? And then um, right. eventually they right. gave him things like Hollywood tonight. And he started working on real Michael Jackson. Tarrell was there with him in the studio voicing his concerns. And at the beginning, apparently Teddy was very upset and, and very vocal about how he thought it wasn't Michael. But at some point, and, and you know, he was expressing to Sony his concern, but at some point, decided mentally within himself to, you know, subdue those concerns for him to be able to continue to work on more Michael. And that's mm-hmm. when the falling out happened, I guess. Yeah, I think that I think that people make decisions based on what's best for their career, you know, and, and what's best for them personally, um, which is why I have shied away from discussing any aspect of it. Nobody, you know, nobody's asked me not to talk about it. I was there for the better part of the project and, and, and witnessed it as it started and as it sort of fell into what you're talking about. I, I heard the album, uh, once before it was released in its entirety. Um, and I think, I mean, I think, uh, have you talked to Michael Prince about it, about it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think that Michael is the, the arbiter of what is, what is real and what is not. Michael knew Michael, um, musically better than probably anyone else in this world other than Quincy Jones up to the point where Quincy and Michael stopped working together. I just had a question about, like, I know you were in the studio, um, filming and, and, and shooting the actual um, recording sessions that Teddy was involved in. Did you document any of the outside things that were going on around it, like the, the listening sessions, the crisis meetings that were going on at Sony? Were you there for any of that sort of stuff or just more so in Not the studio? Not at Sony, just, just things in the studio. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and in reality, you know, I was there for – I was actually in the studio when, when – for some of the listening sessions, yeah – which which were there, I wasn't documenting um, any of those those specific meetings. Um, matter of fact, I'd be hard pressed to even uh, remember who was there at the meetings. I mean, you know, yeah. um, it. Uh, my memory might be jogged at some point, <laughs> but but it, not not at the moment. Um, I think that my impression was. That Sony was intent on getting this record out. And they did what they had to do to get the record out. Beyond that, you know, I think there's uh, this this is one of the most controversial music projects ever. And of course, when you're dealing with the king of pop, 
you know, it's going to be the, the, at, the, at the top end of the spectrum no matter what. And I think that's what we got. Absolutely. Was, and things are, things are really heating up right now in the trial around it. I mean... Uh, what, because of the girls that, that brought the, uh, the class action suit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sony yeah. have admitted in court at this point, they've actually said in court that they, they don't think it's Michael on the album. Have they? Yeah. 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 This is this is their argument, Harrison, right? Their argument is okay, it's probably not him in hindsight, but freedom of speech means that even if it's not him, we should be allowed to say that it is him. Oh wait, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> alternative facts. Right. I forgot <laughs> that that well, it's the doctrine of Trump. Alternative facts supersede every wait alternative facts trump reality there you go there's the quote of the day um a bunch of malarkey i i like that argument if i were if i were some junior lawyer just out of law school i think i'd try to make that argument too who the hell do they have representing them that would make an argument like that that's crazy zio madaba is oh, uh him. is is advancing oh, that argument oh god yeah Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, he represents the estate, not Sony. They're um they're they're working together. What they've done, they, the the lady is uh, her name's Vera. She's suing um, Sony. Then she's suing various elements of the estate, and they're kind of acting in concert together legally. And then okay. she's also suing the Casio contingent. So. Eddie Casio, James Port, and their production company. Um, what's the, what the judge has, has phrased it as is basically Sony and the estate have ganged up and, in the judge's words, thrown the other defendants under the bus. So they've come out and said, yeah, oh, all right, the songs probably are fake, but we didn't know they were fake. And even if they are fake, we should be able to say they're real because that's freedom of speech. <sighs> Well, okay. So, from a legal perspective, I can I, I will say one thing: the songs, if the songs are fake, then they could argue. I, I guess in theory, and I hope I'm not making their argument for them, but they could argue that they are derivative works. Thus. They can say they are written by Michael with the Casios and that using, uh, what's his name? Mordecai? <laughs> Jason Malachi. <laughs> Jason Malachi. <laughs> right. To sing as Michael Jackson. <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this live on the air. I mean, I can't believe I'm doing not live on the air, but I can't believe I'm doing this on, on the air. You know, I don't want to get myself in a, into this. I don't want to become involved in this. I think, to be honest with you, and we can, we, at any point you want, we can move on to, a, to another topic. But I think, to be perfectly honest, you're going to become involved in it because you shot and filmed the um, recording sessions with well, Teddy. You'll almost certainly be subpoenaed, I would have thought. By, they don't um, know where I am, but if they want to pay for my flight to LA, <laughs> I'll be glad to go. <laughs> <laughs> I have not been, you know, oddly enough, I was not subpoenaed for this and I was not asked to testify at the wrongful death suit trial. Mm. 
you know, there I had offered to testify for Mrs. Jackson if she needed me, and I, I, I was not asked to do so. But, you know, here, who knows? I, you know, I, I have to read a little bit about the, the trial as it, as it is unfolding. I'm surprised that they even, personally, I'm, I'm, I'm still shocked that, that they even gave these girls standing because I wouldn't have thought that, well, I mean, I guess as, as fans, as consumers, you know, this is a consumer advocacy issue. So, yeah. 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 I mean, um, they, they, the, the reason it's in court really is because of two, two reasons. At the bottom of the album cover, on the back cover, it says all tracks performed by Michael Jackson. So they've actually claimed on the album cover that it's really him singing the songs. So that's one reason. And then they, um, on Oprah, they put out they put out a, a you know an Oprah special with the Casios and Teddy Riley on it, saying it's him as well. So I mean, there's multiple avenues they've used, including a documentary on YouTube, where they've they've come out and very strongly said it's him singing the songs. And that's just really foolish on their part. For you know, you you don't you don't do something that you know you could get caught in a lie for doing and and then just keep lying. You, you know, and, you, you yeah. stop. I mean, meanwhile, they had the family, they had the Jackson family telling them it's not our son, it's not our brother, etc. They had the fans right. telling them the, the same thing. They had Michael Jackson collaborators telling them the same thing. Literally everyone who knew what they were talking about was telling them not to do it and they still did it. All right, Harrison. Well, well, thank you very much for talking to us there about, from your perspective, what was going on in those uh, the Michael album sessions. What we might do now is is just uh, we're going to ask you a question that we always ask special guests when they come on the show, the people that knew and worked with Michael Jackson in a professional capacity. Harrison Funk, how do you think that Michael Jackson should be remembered? I, I've said it many times. I think that Michael needs to be remembered as um, the great entertainer, the great philanthropist the great humanitarian that he was he left us a legacy of kindness and compassion and healing i i go back to heal the world as a signature piece but that's only one little bit of michael michael was put here on earth as the man who could change humanity for the better and his candle was snuffed out too early so I would hope that people will remember him for the great music for the humanitarian work he's done for the, all the children and all the adults who can attribute healing to Michael and to his to his wonderful music and to his beautiful personality Wonderful answer. Thank you so much. And, and I, I just really want to thank you as well for being able to uh, come on our show, come on the MJ cast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You're somebody that worked with Michael for many decades in, in many different capacities as a, as a personal friend at Neverland Ranch on, you know, as his photographer on tour in so many ways. So thank you for coming on to share some of your incredible stories. You're most welcome. And it was great speaking with you guys. Um, can we do this shameless this shameless plug now? Absolutely. Now you you have a great <laughs> website called Studio Funk. It's harrisonfunk.com 
and Michael Jackson fans all around the world are able to access that website and um, purchase limited edition fantastic prints um, of the King of Pop. Can you talk to us about some of the prints people can buy? Not just of Michael, but of many of the artists that I've, I've photographed. And if anybody's interested, please feel free to contact me through the website. Uh, my email is studiofunk, S-T-U-D-I-O-F-U-N-K, at mac.com or me.com, whichever. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'd be happy to speak to, uh, to write with uh, fans. The prints that we offer are not your average everyday dime store prints that you can buy in a shop, you know, in Soho or in, on Hollywood, Hollywood Boulevard. They are art prints. They're limited edition art prints. They, you know, I exhibit regularly and in galleries. And um, so if anyone's interested in that, please do contact me. And and one of my one of my staff will get back to you. And Harrison, just quickly, can you are you able to tell us anything about the London exhibition that you're planning? It's uh, going to be a retrospective of my work, not just images of Michael. The gallery, I can tell you, the gallery is in the Archway, so it's it's sort of up. It's it's you know off of Archway Road, and it it will be in, but I I don't have a, a scheduled date yet. We're planning the art, where is the archway? Sort of north central London. Oh. Do you know where you know where um, Highgate is? Yeah. Okay. Up. Oh, up right. By Highgate. No, not okay. before Highgate. Not quite. Not quite up there. All right. But it's, it's. I'll be there. Central-ish. You know, it's it's sort of north central London. Okay, and that's that's as of now. If if something changes, I will I will let you guys know so you can publicize it. Um, and I'll announce the opening. Uh, you know what we might do is actually give, depending on how we do the opening, maybe offer a giveaway of opening tickets to to some of your fans. You know, to Jamin. Now that we finally got to have a really long chat, um, <laughs> let's pick it up at some point soon and and have a. You know, have have some brief chats about that and what's going on. I'll keep you posted, Let's and Charlie, you as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I hopefully I'll be there, opening night. You better be forced, there, <laughs> for, forcing you to sign squillions of copies of your retrospective <laughs> book for me. Dude, if you're not there, I'll be really hurt. I want you there. Okay. Jamin, awesome. I want you to fly to England to be there. Uh, <laughs> sure. If someone's going to pay for yeah. me, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I have no money. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Well, you have a. Do, do, Can you put Jamin on I, staff? I see a picture of you holding a, a little kittle. Yeah, Is that that's yours? right. Yeah, yeah, that's Olivia. She's a year old now. And oh my god! Well, <laughs> no wonder you can't afford to fly to London, and know, you'd have just... to bring her too, wouldn't you? <laughs> to be amazing. Well. Uh, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna uh, wrap this show up. The reason is because my earphones are battery powered and they're basically running out. They keep sending me alerts <laughs> saying I'm <laughs> not gonna last. So um, again, Harrison, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, if people want to listen to us, we're at themjcast.com. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, 
uh, Google, everywhere, wherever you want to hear us on YouTube. Search the MJ Cast for a podcast. Please consider subscribing. You hear news and discussion on Michael Jackson, the Jackson family, and also interviews with people that knew and worked with Michael Jackson, just like Harrison. So thank you very much for tuning in, everybody, and you have a great fortnight ahead. We'll be back with another episode soon. And uh, from me, Pete Michaeling. So we're back here again today, having another chat quite a few months later, though. Um, The reason we're getting together today is because the news has just broken that a new documentary is coming out called Leaving Neverland. Uh, It's a collaborative effort between Channel 4, HBO and um, Dan Reed's Amos Pictures. And this documentary is going to be giving a platform to two people, two individuals who have accused Michael Jackson of uh, sex crimes, uh, including uh, Wade Robson and Jimmy Savechuck. Fellas, what a devastating development. Uh, let's lead off with, uh, with you, Harrison. What do you think about this? Well, I haven't seen the documentary. I think it's pretty disgraceful that both Safechuck and Robson lost in court uh, in their bid to sue the estate and uh, to sue Michael or Michael through the estate. And despite that, he now wants to try this in the media. They want to try this in the media. I don't have a, a clue who this Dan Reed character is. I better not find out that they've used any of my pictures in this documentary. And I, I got to say, it's pretty disgusting. Uh, both of them had their day in court. Both of them were unsuccessful. What's the point? Why bother just to sensationalize this even further, to run a beautiful dead person through the muck? And, and I hope I said that in the right way. Uh, I don't want to hear a bunch of guff from fans who don't like the fact that I just said that, but Michael was an absolutely wonderful human being. So I, you know, I think that he gave both of them opportunities that, that they should be proud of. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, he was very generous with his time and money to both of them. And, um, you know, what's the point? Uh, here it is. Michael passed away nine years ago, uh, almost 10, nine and a half, pretty exactly. And, um, you know, where is this going? What do they gain from it? Neither of them have made any friends over this thing. When I knew Jimmy on the road, I got to tell you, he seemed like a very happy kid getting an opportunity to dance on stage with Michael, being flown all over the world with his parents, I might add, who were there the whole time. It was a wonderful experience for him, I'm sure. He never seemed like he was scared. He was cowed. He was, he was never, you know, never seemed, he never appeared like a kid that had a problem in the world. 
never seemed like a kid who was worried about something going on behind the scenes, you know, and I don't want to hear from a bunch of psychiatrists saying, well, that doesn't always happen. Okay. I think most people can pick up on when a kid is unhappy. And I think most people can pick up on when there's a problem. And I don't think there's a, a soul that was on the road with us on the bad tour that ever noticed a problem. Wade is another story. I've met Wade. Wade is one of the better dancers out there, or was. But my impression of Wade, you know, I, don't, I don't know the guy. I never, we were never friendly. We met a couple of times at different things. And I, I you know, you couldn't even press me to tell you where specifically I spoke with him. But again, you know, he was a kid. To be honest with you, the only reason I interacted with Jimmy was because I photographed him on stage and because I, I knew his parents, you know, while we were on the road. Matter of fact, uh, Michael threw a birthday party for his mother and me because we share a birthday or we're a couple days apart. I don't remember if it's the same day or a couple days apart. He threw a birthday party for, for both of us in, in Nice in 88. And... You know, his parents seemed like absolutely wonderful people. You know, I don't know what they what they grew into, and I don't know what what even happened with him that all of this started. How many years later? And how many? Listen, all all I can say is it's it's the same as other. There's a few other people out there. I'm not going to mention any names, but we all know who they are, who have said Michael never did anything. Michael never treated us badly. Michael never, never so much as said a bad word to us. And as I remembered, Jimmy Safechuck was one of those people. I think Wade Robson was as well. What's the story? Is this a money grab like, like all the other money grabs that we've seen? You know, it's very easy to grab money from somebody who's no longer with us. And it's very easy to grab some money from someone who is very wealthy yeah, well, that's how this all came to light, is because the documentary has been programmed to show at the Sundance Film Festival. So Wade's allegations came to light because he filed a civil lawsuit. Uh, so in answer to Harrison's question, yes, it was a money grab. He filed civil lawsuits against something like 50 different entities that were in some way affiliated with Michael Jackson, and he was accusing all of Michael's employees and businesses of being involved in a conspiracy, uh, which I think his lawyer described as the biggest Hollywood pedophile ring in, in history or something like that. So the allegation was that all of Michael's organizations were involved in procuring boys for him and then covering up his crimes. And, and the reason he had to allege that was because uh, he couldn't sue Michael himself because Michael was dead. So he had to find a reason to sue uh, organizations affiliated with Michael after he had died. And then Jimmy Savechuck sort of piggybacked on Wade's lawsuit. He came forward a little while later and used the same lawyer and they turned it into a joint lawsuit. Then there was a third person who came forward, which was a girl, but I don't know what's happened to her. And she was... Never named. It turned out that Wade had been uh, touting a book before he filed his lawsuit. Uh, so again, 
yes, it does look like a money gram. I don't know. I can't. I can't say whether he's being paid for his involvement in this film. Uh, I've got no idea. But perhaps the film is a is a, another way of uh, trying to build up interest in a book. It also looks to me to be a bit of a vindictive move because straight after Michael Jackson died, for the following years after that, I know Wade was in talks with the estate to to be involved in the Cirque du Soleil thing and that didn't work out. He didn't actually get the job. So yeah. a lot of fans are speculating that maybe it's a vindictive move um, because he didn't get uh, you know in bed with the estate like he wanted to. I mean, that, look at the type of person that would that would throw their hats in the ring to be on a tour honoring Michael and to be intricately involved in that show and then turn around when he doesn't get what he wants, which was obviously a, a place in that production. And now says, oh, Michael molested me. Oh, Michael did this. Oh, Michael did that. Sounds pretty sour grapes. Sounds pretty vindictive to me. Mm. Now, if uh, the if if the average person outside of Hollywood, outside of the entertainment business, who's been wronged, I, I believe, I, I, I think this is a pretty good characterization of human nature. Pardon the pun. The average person who has been wronged by someone else and feels a scar does not throw his hat in the ring to be part of a production honoring that person, does not put himself in that position unless he has ulterior motives. And I wonder, now that you've mentioned, you know, uh, Wade touting the, the idea of a lawsuit, if Wade had this all concocted long before he started, this is just conjecture. But, you know, Sundance is a is a fairly good platform to release an independent film. Always has been. That's the point of Sundance as a festival. A lot of successful films have come out of there and a lot of documentaries have come through there. I don't know who the producers are. I mean, obviously, I know Channel 4 and HBO. I don't know if they put money into the production or not. It's pretty weird. You know, you think back that... HBO was was the network that premiered Michael's show in Crest. HBO, I believe, negotiated. I, I might be wrong, but I think they negotiated for This Is It when This Is It came out. Showtime got it, didn't they? I'm not sure, but they were also involved in Michael's mid-90s um, failed one-night-only show as well. I think they were down to, to actually yes. televise that. So they have a bit of a history with Michael Jackson, actually. Yeah, and I find it very interesting that they are, you know, th this sounds like money. It sounds like, oh, we have the most famous celebrity that's ever lived being slammed apart by two people who have little credibility in my mind, one of whom the media has characterized as having a very failed career two years ago. Don't know what it's like now. And I feel bad if that's the case. Look, I feel bad for any artist whose career is dwindling. At the same time, it's been 30 years since bad, 31 years, 
31 and a half years since BAD started. Mm. 31 and a half years, wasn't it? it? BAD started in 87. I believe that after that much time, to start tearing someone apart, there has to be something, either grave vindictiveness yeah, or the desire for a lot of money, or both. Now, I would think that, I think that Wade was not given standing because the statute of limitations had run out. Charlie, please correct my information if I'm, if I'm wrong, but um, didn't the no, you're court correct. That- so what happened was they, they brought the case out of time, uh, so they had to make an argument to justify bringing it out of time. And I believe the argument they made was that it was some sort of psychological problem whereby the psychological damage caused by the abuse uh, meant that Wade was unable to realize that he had been abused until the statute of limitations had passed. Uh, and therefore, that was their justification for bringing the case out of time. But it failed. Uh, so the case was slung out of court before it could even start. It took a couple of years of, of arguing back and forth between his lawyers and the estate. But uh, eventually they got it tossed. None of no. that makes any sense to me at all. This guy was on the stand in 2005. He was the, the lead defense witness for Tom Mesereau and uh, said on the stand that nothing ever happened. Come on. Right. So how, how if he didn't realize that anything had ever happened? I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, honestly, uh, I've never been molested by anybody except I was bullied. You know, like I think all of us probably were bullied to some degree in high school. I can remember every single kid that ever tried to push me into the mud or, or, <laughs> or threw my books out of my locker, whatever. Okay. There weren't that many, but I can remember every one, every incident. And I'm friends with a couple of them today. And we've laughed about it. I find it very hard when, that, to think that he didn't realize that he'd been abused what did he think that that what you know what was he thinking that 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 the abuse he's alleging is just the normal behavior of a another person surely he would have thought about that long before he testified on michael's behalf he was he was not actually just to point out as well he was not just asked on the stand were you abused? Because that way it might wash if he if he could say, oh, well, they asked me if I was abused and I didn't consider it abuse. But, but he actually was specifically asked repeatedly, did Michael Jackson ever touch your genitals? Did Michael Jackson ever fondle you? Did Michael Jackson ever kiss you in an inappropriate way? Et cetera, et cetera. So they put to him all of the specific acts on the stand and he repeatedly denied all of them so this whole thing about oh well i just didn't realize it was abuse that doesn't really wash it he's still he abuse or not he denied the specific acts in 2005 and that throws his whole credibility down the toilet because even even if you believe let's say you believe him now uh, for argument's sake it still makes him a liar and a perjurer so 
even if you believe him now, you still can't objectively say that he's a credible witness, which means really you have to sling everything he says out of the window. So the whole... The, the whole idea of basing a, a film, a documentary on this guy's testimony, when by his own account, he's a liar and a perjurer, is just ridiculous. Charlie and, and Jamin, honestly, that sheds more credibility on, on our argument that uh, this is just a money grab. It's a great way. Listen, best way to make some money today in, in the entertainment world is to make a reality show that is controversial or to make a documentary that dredges up controversy and harms the people that are involved other than the protagonists um or i should actually it would be the antagonists in this case i'm pretty certain having read a bit about this documentary and you know i'm sure you guys are going to ask me if if I'm going to watch it, which I haven't decided yet. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a second. But uh, from everything I've read, it sounds to me as though the producer was gotten hold of or got hold of, Safe Chuck and Robinson and Robson, and um, saw dollar signs mm. or pound signs and and said, I can make some money making a documentary it's not going to probably take that much but to to get some you know some some outtakes uh some clips from some clip service and to do interviews with these guys and other people who are so inclined to speak ill of michael jackson and and we know there's plenty of people that have been willing to speak ill of michael jackson you know i'm not going to mention them because i don't want to give them any publicity well i want to ask about i want to ask though about i know there are a range of people like you know, let's not beat around the bush. But I, I want to ask, why is there this pattern whereby former friends of Michael Jackson, namely kids that he was friends with or families that he was friends with, why are they turning on him in the most horrible way? And so many of them, you know, the Chandlers, the Arvizos, you know, the Robsons, Save Chuck. Let's talk about, you know, the Casio family. They haven't chosen the molestation route, but they've done pretty much the same thing in another way. Why are all these families that Michael was friends with turning against him massively? It's shocking. Take them one by one. Evan Chandler, who killed himself, by the way. And, you know, there's a number of different opinions of why he killed himself. Evan Chandler didn't like the fact that Michael turned him down for a multi-million dollar deal. That he, that he put to Michael because he was jealous of Michael's relationship with his son. Okay, that's number one. Number two, look at the Arvizos. Janet Arvizo was convicted of welfare fraud. You're going to defraud the state of California, you could easily defraud Michael Jackson. Um, Janet Arvizo was another one, needed money. They weren't doing so well. What did Michael do for Gavin? Michael paid for medical bills, paid for their support. Come on, let's be real. The safe chucks. I don't know that the safe chucks needed money. I don't know that Jimmy needs money. I have no idea. Um, 
maybe he turned on Michael because he felt like his career never, I, I don't know. I'm, uh, this is conjecture again. Maybe he thought my career never went where I wanted it to go. And, you know, Michael should have done more for me to, to make my career something. I, I don't know. And I don't want to put words in his mouth because I, I don't want to be the one to, to give him fuel for the, for the flames. You know, you look at some of the other kids and families that were around Mike that have basically used whatever they can to parlay their their own pocket change, their own careers by their attachment to Michael. Who's the, there was a fourth? There was a fourth person you mentioned. Uh, I mentioned the Cassio family. Oh, the so Cassios, that, right? That, okay. That's different, though. So like that's not molestation. Let, that's a very different situation. But they, you know, look at the Cassios. The Cassios had a musical and social relationship with Michael. Charlie, please tell me what happened in the end with that court case in... in uh... Sony and the estate managed to get the case thrown out by arguing that freedom of speech includes the freedom to describe fake art as real. So the case was thrown out of court, but Vera has managed to get it um, accepted for an appeal at the Supreme Court. So she's now awaiting a hearing at the Supreme Court. You know, this could drag on for years and go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, that, it takes a while to, for that to happen. I, as an artist, personally, you know, am appalled by the idea that, that it's okay to, that you know, the courts would rule that it's okay to consider fake art real because, you know, They've also said, the courts have also ruled, uh, in the case of, of people that have stolen pictures from Instagram, that it's fair use. And that's being appealed, too, right now. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's troubling to me as an artist that that, that could happen, mm. right? Because there's a fine line between real and fake these days, courtesy of our president and his people like to talk about fake news and fake fake everything and yet you know the man lies every day of his life maybe this is what's going on i i i don't know i i'm just my only point about the casios is when the truth is borne out and and i believe hasn't malachi uh, admitted that he sang some of michael's parts uh, he he did. Um, there was a Facebook post from him in 2010 where he came clean, but he claims that he was actually hacked, and that was a fan that got in his account and did that. I've spoken with him as well, and he's um, held the line all the way since 2010 that he's. Um, well, he he doesn't actually come out and say straight up, "I'm not the singer." He dances around it, and he'll say, "I can't confirm or deny," or he'll say. People are lying about him or whatever. He'll never say, I didn't sing the songs. <laughs> the reason the reason I raised the yeah. Casios is because I think it's pretty clear that the reason Eddie Casio's done what he's done is because he felt like he was owed something by Michael that never worked out. Like they mm-hmm. worked for years on those songs. He James Port, the guy he worked with, was a... Um, was an actual, you know, collaborator of Michael in a New York studio during the Invincible sessions. This guy had met Michael Jackson before they'd worked together before in the studio. Eddie teamed up with him. They worked for years on the songs together. They were crafting them. They were ready to present them to Michael in London. 
during This Is It. They never got to. So I yep. think I think Eddie did it because psychologically he couldn't handle the fact that he never got his dream songs never got worked on by Michael Jackson in the end. So he wanted to make it a reality yep. in in uh, you know in a fraudulent way. So can we take that and apply that to people like Wade Robson? Was Wade Robson did he feel like he was owed something by Michael Jackson that never worked out? Did he audition for This Is It and never got to do it? I don't know the story there. But you'd have well, to the, ask the Wade pattern, Robson because the, honestly, the, no one can speak to his state of mind and his and his feelings except for him. The, the pattern is that they always bring these cases when they get frozen out. Evan brought the allegations when he got frozen out. Gavin's family brought the allegations when they got frozen out. Wade brought the allegations when he didn't get the job for the Cirque du Soleil show. Mm-hmm. Having previously, since Michael died, repeatedly participated in tribute events. He even wrote a chapter in the official Michael Jackson opus, where he says words to the effect of Michael was the most perfect human being I've ever had the pleasure to know. And everything I do in life, I do with a view to being as much like him as I possibly can, something like that. So he was participating in all these tributes right up to the point where he didn't get that job and he got frozen out. And then um, and then he too brought his claim. So that's the pattern. Yeah. Mm. None of that's going to be in the documentary. Yeah, that, that's not going to be in the documentary, no. I think as far yeah. as the documentary, and we were talking about motive, I think um, you've got to look at this in the context of the Me Too movement. I think Dan Reed and his production company may not just be looking at money. They may be looking at prestige. Ronan Farrow has just won a Pulitzer Prize for his work exposing Harvey Weinstein. So who knows what kind of... Um, visions these guys are having about where this could go and what it could do for them well dan reads uh calls himself the pedo hunter and he's got he's got documentaries uh, other documentaries exposing alleged pedophiles so this is not something new he's done this before and i also think i was just researching last night who are the who are the people who are the executives involved in these companies that are actually making this happen there's also a woman by the name of kerry putnam uh, or Kerry Putnam, who is um, the executive vice president of HBO, but also has a shared role. She's also the executive director of Sundance. So she's pretty much the CEO of Sundance and a very high-level executive at HBO. So I wouldn't be surprised if she's very involved as well in this documentary coming about. Bottom line of all this is that it's a bit late in the game to be making this documentary. Then again, you know, you look at, um, what was the movie? Mommy Dearest was made how many years after Joan Crawford died? You know, and that was, that took some license as well from what I heard. Not a lot, but, you know, there was, there were some untruths, some, or some exaggerations there. But I can't think of many, many people that have been ripped apart so many years after they've passed who also had as much respect as they do. Mm. And it's disappointing to me, it's very sad to me, that a network the size of HBO and a festival the size of Sundance, well, of course, Sundance is not going to turn down a well-made documentary as an entrant. They're not going to say, they're not going to censor the content of a documentary. 
unless it's unless it's completely libelous. And if that were the case, you know, well, by by virtue of fact, this should be we don't know what's contained within because we've not seen it. We don't know how much of this is libelous and how much of this is is just sensationalized mm. um, because Michael's not here to defend himself, which is an advantage for the, the accusers. That makes it even sadder to me. I think you've just hit the nail on the head, Harris. And I think with for fans, the way we're feeling at the moment is these a lot of documentaries and books come out about Michael Jackson all the time that say silly things. And I mean, we're no stranger to it. Even when Michael was alive, I remember a UK TV station airing a documentary called Michael Jackson's Face, which was like the most horrible, terrible documentary I've ever seen in my oh, life. Oh, Channel 5. I rem- you know yeah, what? I remember, remember it that? very well. They called me and they said, we need pictures of Michael's face so we can morph them. Oh, my God. They wanted so, to morph his face. Yeah. So we're used to all this sort of thing happening. The difference this time is that, like you said, there's players involved like HBO and Sundance who are incredibly respected large media corporations and and that is very disappointing um very very disappointing we we need we need to be able to do something about this what do you what do you think about how the estate the estate have recently released a statement basically saying in a nutshell we can't do anything about this because michael's dead and anyone can say whatever they want on a documentary if they're um not using copyrighted material that's right as long as until the uh uh uh, California defamation of of um, deceased people bill ever is resurrected and passes, they're absolutely correct. There is nothing the estate can do. It's not that they're not wanting to do something. I'm sure they do want to do something. You know, I'm sure this is not going to help them in any way. But the only thing that they can go after is Misuse of Michael's name and likeness, misuse of Michael, you know, misuse of Michael's trademarks or, or copyrights. That's the problem because a documentary, by definition, is akin to a journalistic undertaking. And, you know, I, I have to say that, that they're absolutely correct. There's not much they can do. I mean, they could probably try to appeal to HBO. But to what end? They're not gonna. They're not gonna get what they. You know, they're not gonna get what they want. Do you normally go to Sundance, Harrison? Never. I have. I've only been to Sundance once, and that was years ago. You should go um, to the Q and A. Seriously, I'm, I'm being serious. A lot of fans are actually they're buying tickets. They're going to the Q and A. Well, that's great. When is it? Uh, it's in like a few weeks, I think. Okay. I mean, I would love to. I'd love a, a, a trip trip out to Colorado. I think it'd be great. But but I I don't think um, I don't see it happening. But you never know. I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to confront him with this. The thing is that that I think all that would do, honestly, is just open up a a, a can of media worm for both of us. <laughs> Michael Jackson's longtime photographer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wonder. How that will play, and you know, it's funny too. I want to say, um, and and you can, I, I'll say this for the record, but I hope I say it in 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 a good way, or it's meant in a good way. But I hope it comes out that way. I don't do any of my interviews; never have, for fame or for fortune. I've made a, a few cheeky plugs over the years, and a few of them, <laughs> but. <laughs> 
I, I don't, I don't do it, you know, for, for any personal gain. I do it because of my love for Michael. And because, you know, I think that, that this is a man who was much maligned for no reason and who people often forget got to where he got, became as famous as he became because, you know, like Ali, he was the greatest. He's the king of pop. And for, and, you know, for goodness sake, l- let's give him his due. I still can tell you, I have walked into many, many, many a store that plays music and heard really just one, usually two, three, four Michael Jackson songs in a row. The radio still plays Michael and every club I ever go to and probably any bar I've ever been to, when they play Michael, people jump on the dance floor. You know, how many years has it been since Thriller came out? How many years was it, has it been since Bad came out? How many years has it been since Dangerous came out? You know, we're, we're talking about songs that have lasted the test of time. Now, I can't think of many songs aside from, you know, I mean, a handful of songs from the 20s, 30s, 40s that, that have lasted the you know, withstood the test of time. Michael still is the, the legend of legends in the music business. It's just, it, it's very unfortunate to me that, that, that his name has to be sullied for things that were adjudicated in his favor, where he was actually acquitted of accusations and allegations made against him uh this just just it it breaks my heart that that you know um, almost 10 years after his death that we're on the radio talking about something that we should not have to be talking about and i will do this for the rest of my life you know whatever i have to do to to make it known that you know, my attitude towards Michael was very real, and that that it's it's not not just very real, but but that I I will defend him as a person, as an entertainer, as an artist, uh, for as long as I can speak. And I think that there are a lot of people like myself that that feel the same way. I think it's just it you know, it's time to be vocal. It's time to be. Uh, it's it's time to say, look, enough is enough. Just give him his due as 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 an artist, and and cut the other crap. Because you know, how much money are these guys going to make? What's Dan Reed going to make on this documentary? You know, enough money to do his next documentary, no doubt. Who's going to buy it? Who's going to watch it? What are the ratings going to be like with all the you know with 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 so many people not liking it? But there again. You know, controversy buys ratings. Ratings buy dollars. And so it goes back to my original question of, is it a money grab? You bet your rear end it's a money grab. You know, this is only being done for money. There's nothing, there's no good that's going to come out of this. Charlie, your final thoughts? Well, I'm very concerned about this uh documentary i have to say in the uh the me too era with the cult of believe the victim anybody who doesn't believe the victim 
is a victim blamer, there are paedophile sympathizer, etc. I think that the context in which this documentary is being made is a context which is unique uh, to all of the the uh, instances through the years where allegations like this have been made about Michael. The public is a lot more primed to believe in these kind of allegations now. Uh, and and in fact, there's a culture now where it's almost like you have to, you have to believe because if you don't believe, then you will be attacked for not believing. That's the culture we're living in at the moment is um, believe the victim. Anybody who doesn't believe, anybody who says, well, hang on a minute, where's the evidence? Or anybody who says, what about reasonable doubt? They're just smeared immediately as being a, a victim blamer a sympathizer, criminal sympathizer. So this is a very frightening time. The burden of proof and the principle of presumption of innocence under grave threat. People are being accused under the Me Too banner and having their jobs taken away. And then no charges are brought, but their career has already been destroyed. And of course, the the added burden for Michael is that he's not here to defend himself, as we've said legal framework in place to protect him in terms of a living person who's accused there is uh, at least defamation law so you can take legal recourse whereas with michael because he's dead there is no recourse you can say whatever you want about a dead person and they can't do anything nobody can do anything on their behalf so i'm very concerned about this i i honestly believe this is the gravest threat that there has ever been to the legacy of Michael Jackson. This is more serious than when they brought the lawsuit a few years ago because the context has changed. And I, I, I do really worry for Michael's legacy going forward. I think you could, you could easily, depending on the public reaction to this film, I, th I think we could see his music banned from radio stations. I think we could see all of his videos pulled from music channels I think this could be absolutely devastating and permanent. Uh, I'm very concerned about it, and I cannot really think of anything that we can do to fight it or to stop it. I mean, we can send complaint emails, but you know, Dan Reed is not going to pull his film from the Sundance Film Festival because the fans have written him a complaint letter. It's just not going to happen. So, I really am stumped as to as to what we can do, and I'm very disappointed in the the lack of response and action from the estate and from uh, the majority of the family the the estate is saying well there's nothing we can do but we know we know that when the estate wants to do something it does something we know that with vera it did absolutely everything it could it's it brought time wasting motion after time wasting motion after time wasting motion just to stop this thing from coming to a trial it took years absolutely years because the estate just in such a petty way, just filed one pedantic, whinging, time-wasting motion after another. And yet now you have this existential threat to Michael Jackson's reputation and legacy, and they're saying, well, there's nothing we could do, really. There is plenty of stuff they could be doing. It might be frivolous, it might be thrown out of court in a year's time, but that would be a year that they've delayed this film and have significantly damaged its prospects, but they don't seem to be interested in taking that kind of action that's very disappointing and concerning to me. I would like to see a, a more emphatic response from the family as well. Jermaine has spoken. 3T have spoken. That's about it. Taj is talking about doing a documentary of his own, but it's too late. 
this film is coming out in about three weeks time he's not going to have a film ready in three weeks so whatever he does he's on the back foot it'd probably be a year before his film comes out by the time that happens michael could be over it could be it could be finished he it, it could all be over this could be the end so for me this is very frightening and um struggling to find any kind of uh silver lining at the moment i think we just what we need to do is is all we can do which is reaching out to the people in charge maybe not dan reed but certainly sundance certainly hbo certainly channel four let's get in contact with these companies through emails to their ceos not not to some i don't know help desk but to their ceos and say this is not okay and we present the evidence and we say this is why it's not okay that you're showing this the one thing that can certainly be done and it may not have to be done by the estate maybe something that uh, somebody in the family maybe Taj maybe maybe you know um, his brothers maybe some of the other family members could affect is forcing HBO to run a disclaimer saying you know that that Michael's not here to defend himself you know, allegations were brought, and these two gentlemen both took Michael's side in in terms of allegations that were brought against Michael and other young people. And you know, especially in the in the Arvisa trial, they could be persuaded to run some kind of disclaimer saying that you know there there is no proof of these allegations that that these people lost in court or weren't heard in court. There, there are actually things that, that, that could be pushed, but the, the thing is I don't think that legally there's any way to get to, to stop the airing of this as, as, a, as a work in itself. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the, the estate has, has made a valid point that, that unless it's a, unless there's you know, um, some copyright trademark um, name and likeness infringement that isn't covered in the, you know, the laws that apply to documentaries or journalistic endeavors. I think that there's not much that can be done other than to to force HBO and Channel Four and Sundance to display a disclaimer. And I've seen that done. I've seen it done on television in other documentaries. It's it's an unfortunate thing that you know. I, I guess you guys are familiar with the um, California defamation law, that is, that, or the bill that is that, that that a lot of people tried to pass after Michael passed away. It has not yet gone through the California State House. I don't know why, but with the number of celebrities that are maligned, it certainly is something that should be passed and should be enacted and enforced i'm just disappointed that after so many years uh, someone finds the need to address issues that were adjudicated legally and not in their favor by uh, running a, a defamatory documentary until we we see it i have no idea if if anyone uh, is there to to defend michael I gather from everything I've, I've been reading, no. And I think it's very necessary for that to, at the very least, for that to be part of this uh, production or part of this, uh, this broadcast. 
uh, and certainly at Sundance. It's disappointing to me that that nine years after Michael passed, that that people see fit to continue trying to decimate his career and and to try to you know bring disrepute on someone so incredibly talented and so incredibly wonderful as a human being. I only ever saw Michael treat people with dignity and respect. I never saw anything else. And and you know, I knew Michael for a very, very, very long time. And I have to say, this is uh, a dark moment in the entertainment industry's history. The MJ Cast. Do you feel like uh, holding a press conference every week and saying, well, this is the rumor du jour? That's not true. <laughs> no, because I know eventually the truth will prevail. And I'm about truth, you know?